When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Comic strip, Dilbert. So I, um, you know, I wouldn't call myself a Dilbert fan. I don't really read many of the comic strips these days. But to the extent that I would, I would read Dilbert. I would read Kathy. And um, it was fine. I wouldn't call myself a big fan. I wouldn't say I disliked it. If my eyes glanced across it and I had 40 seconds to look at a cartoon... Sometimes it would give me a chuckle, sometimes not. Most of the time, though, honestly, I don't even read the comic strip. That being said, for the last 72 hours, we have seen a a snowball effect of newspaper after newspaper make the decision to drop the comic strip Dilbert. Um, Why? Well, it has to do with the creator of Dilbert, Scott Adams. Now, Scott Adams has been pretty controversial the last few years. It started because he praised Donald Trump for his oratory skills and his communication skills and how he used Twitter. And then it was pretty clear that he wasn't just praising Trump for his abilities to communicate. It was pretty clear that he was praising Trump because he agreed with a lot of what Trump was saying. So anyway... He was sort of outed maybe five or six years ago as a Trump supporter. Well, he's developed a whole bunch of fans online for, for of uh, folks that have uh, been watching his commentaries because it has not having anything to do with his comic strip, but because they like his political commentary and they they like his analysis of other things. So. Here he was um, on, I think it was Friday, either Thursday or Friday. And he gave what's being described as a racist rant on his own YouTube show. This is on YouTube. And this is the part that has been printed and reprinted everywhere over the last 72 hours. And I saw this, and I'm going to play 
you this excerpt, and then I'm going to play you the broader context of it, and then we'll have a discussion about it. I saw this, and then I saw the news that USA Today had dropped him, that the Star-Ledger had dropped him, the New York Daily News had dropped him, the Cleveland Plains Dealer had dropped him. Basically, news, every, by tomorrow, every newspaper in the country probably will have dropped him. And I saw this comment, and I said, my goodness, this is racist. And then I was explaining the story to my wife as I was preparing for the show last night. And I said, honey, and I'm not going to tell you what she said, but I said, honey, because she's a journalist, I'm always curious. She's worked most of her life in newspapers, and I'm always curious to get her take on stuff like this. I said, honey, the creator of Dilbert uh, made some racist remarks. They're talking about dropping – they're not talking about – they're dropping his comic strip in newspapers everywhere. Do you think that's the right move? And you know what she said? It was such an astute question she asked. She said, were the comments actually racist or are people just saying it was racist? And I read these comments, the comments that I'm about to play for you. I said, no, no, no. These comments were actually racist. This is the, these are the comments that you're going to see. If you haven't seen them all weekend, you're going to see them all over the place for the next 24 hours. The best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the f*** away. Now, um, that's what you're going to see printed everywhere. The truth is a little more, the context of it is a little more nuanced. And I watched the commentary right before the show again so that I could actually have some idea what I'm talking about. So newspapers across, he predicted yesterday that by this time tomorrow, he will be in approximately zero newspapers, and he's well on his way. Newspapers across the country are ditching Dilbert following what they're describing as this racist rant on Scott Adams' YouTube show last week in which he called black Americans a hate group and said white people should just get the hell away from them. In just days... Adams' remarks have ousted him from the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, Cleveland Plain Dealer, San Antonio Express News, and the USA Today Network, which includes hundreds of papers. This comic strip debuted in 1989, and for the last 35 years or so, this has been one of the most widely read comic strips in the nation. Now, uh Adams tweeted a few hours ago, has anyone checked the price of free speech lately? It's worse than eggs. And then he added, I just learned the I just learned Cleveland has a newspaper, which was, you know, his way, I guess, at poking fun at the people that are taking shots at him. Now, I want you to call me and tell me one thing. If these remarks are racist and then we're going to get to Ernie Anastas in just a bit. If these remarks were racist, should these newspapers drop him? 800-848-9222. And why? Now, as you contemplate that question, I want you to listen to the full two-minute clip of what he, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, actually said. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll... Uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the f*** away. Wherever you have to go, just get away. Because there's no fixing this. 
This can't be fixed. Right? This can't be fixed. You just have to escape. So that's what I did. I went to a neighborhood where you know I have a very low black population because unfortunately there you know there's a high correlation between the density. And this is according to Don Lemon, by the way. Um, so here I'm just quoting Don Lemon when when he notes that the when he lived in a uh, mostly black neighborhood, there were a bunch of problems that he didn't see in white neighborhoods. So even Don Lemon sees a big difference in your own quality of living based on where you live and who's there. So I I think it makes no sense whatsoever as a uh, white citizen of America to try to help black citizens anymore. It doesn't make sense. It's no longer a rational impulse. And so I'm going to back off from being helpful to black America because it doesn't seem like it pays off. Like, I've been doing it all my life, and I've been the only outcome is I, be, I get called a racist. That's the only outcome. <laughs> it makes no sense to help black Americans if you're white. Uh, the, the, it's over. Don't, don't even think it's worth trying. Totally not trying. Now, the one aspect, and I'm sorry this was not included in the clip that we uh, just played, is those remarks followed uh, Scott Adams reading a poll. So in this Real Coffee with Scott Adams podcast, it came after he shared and he read the poll results. And then you hear him reference the poll results in the clip that I just played. He shared the unsettling results of a Rasmussen poll. When asked if they agree with the statement, it's okay to be white, according to the Rasmussen poll, 26% of blacks disagreed and 21% weren't sure. So um, in addition to the USA, uh, and you know, so you have essentially a majority of black people saying it's not okay to be white. That is, to me, a much bigger story than Scott Adams' reaction to this. So um, it's okay to be white. 53% of blacks agree. 26% disagree. 21% not sure. Black people can be racist too. 76% agree. 27% disagree. Now, so almost half. 47% either disagree with the statement, it's okay to be white, or are not sure if they agree with the statement. Now, that to me is alarming. And what Scott Adams is saying, now, I I try not to read too much into these polls because so much just depends on who they're sampling and uh, what the results of the, you know, how they ask the question. But what Scott Adams is saying is, if that's true, stay away from black people. Now, I do think that's a racist thing to say. But he then spends an hour more explaining those remarks and why that is so troubling. Now, Elon Musk, to his credit, basically said that, um, you know, the the mainstream media verdict is Adams is a racist, but not the 20 million black people who think it's not okay to be white. Elon Musk is exactly right. If Scott Adams is a racist, 
than the 20 million people, because Scott Adams is not saying it's not okay to be black, but the 20 million, if this is an accurate poll, the 20 million blacks that were surveyed for this poll are saying it's not okay to be white. Now, that is crazy, crazy. Um, That being said, my position, and it's the reason we still play Michael Jackson on this show, it's the reason we still play, um, you know, Gary Glitter on this show. It's the reason we still play every controversial artist there is. Kanye West, Bill Cosby, you name it. There, I think even if those statements were racist, the comic strip should not be removed from these newspapers. Because you have to separate the art from the artist. There's no allegation that what's in the cartoon is racist at all. Scott Adams is not saying blacks are inferior to whites or anything like that. He's saying if the results of this poll are true, white people should stay away from black. I don't agree with that, and I wouldn't say that. But I certainly don't think this should result in his canceling. So uh, Elon Musk tweeted yesterday, for a very long time, U.S. media was racist against non-white people. Now they're racist against whites and Asians. Same thing happened with elite colleges and high schools in America. Maybe they can try not being racist. What is your view? One, is this racist? Two, if it is racist, should his comic strip be canceled? And then we're going to talk with, uh, uh, because we could all use a little positivity, we're going to talk with the great Ernie Anastas in a moment. Let me begin with uh, Alan Yonkers. Hello. Hello there, Al. Frank, you know, Frank, when I hear about these comments, uh, uh, quickly, uh, I flash back to Howard Cosell, uh, Jimmy the Greek, and I, I remember in 1987, the Dodgers GM, I believe his name was Roy Campanaro, when they made statements they shouldn't have. So I would say, you know, these comments, my personal opinion, were racist, and uh, his comic strip uh, should probably... Uh, these large newspapers will will uh, rightly uh, dismiss it from their papers. All right, well, first of all, that was Al Campanis, the Dodger general manager. Yes. In the case, of, well, I would agree with you know Jimmy the Greek's comments were were uh, were certainly racist. But in the case of Howard Cosell, I don't think those comments were racist. When he said, "Look at that little monkey run," he would call everybody, including his grandchildren, a little monkey. And I think okay. that was unfair. But but putting that aside. The case of all three of the people you just mentioned was very different, better or worse than, um, you know, uh, than Scott Adams, because Scott Adams didn't just simply make an off the cuff remarks. He spent an hour and a half. This was a prepared dissertation um, explaining and analyzing the statistics and his reaction to that. 800-848-9222. My opinion is. I think it probably is a racist thing to say. Whenever you say stay away from the Jews, stay away from the blacks, stay away from the Asians. I mean, come on. How is that not racist? Um, that being said, I still don't think the comic strip should be pulled from all these newspapers. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Uh, hey, Frank. I'm glad you're talking about this because I was going to have an aneurysm. Um it's not. It's not racist. Um, it's like uh, Sigourney Weaver was Sigourney Weaver uh, racist, but she was killing these aliens trying to to get at her and then the little girl. You know what I mean? But um, are you familiar with Twitter Spaces at all? 
Uh, yes and no, but uh, maybe some of the audience isn't, so educate us. Well, something came to a head the other night. It could be some have something to do with this. I don't know where the original poll came from, but... Rasmussen. Consider, well, consider the 20 million people. I don't believe that number either, really. Well, you know, 20 million is not that many people. Well, that's why, consider and I, that- I, I want to I try and get the beginning of Scott Adams' comments on this. That's why he says, if this poll is accurate, that's what he says at the beginning of his comments, and then he follows up that a little, you know, a little bit later. Um, when it gets into Ernie Anastas in a bit, but uh, let me say hello to St- David in the Bronx, who I know, who wrote to me about this. I think he was one of the first people to email me about this. David, give me your view on this. Okay, Frank. Now I'm very angry right now, and you'll have to forgive me. But let me tell you something. I listened to that whole thing. It is racist. He went into a lot more than what you played, and. To listen to that as someone who was called the N-word for the first time in first grade and have heard it multiple times in my life, I know racism when I hear it. And I know that you're insensitive when it comes to racial issues, Frank. This is a problem I've had with you for a long time. And I knew you were going to say what you said about this. I knew it because this is something that you've been doing for years. Okay, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with racism personally, but I don't I doubt it, Frank. Because you would not say the things that you said. And to imply that 20 million black people believe what Rasmussen told is ridiculous. Okay? Rasmussen is a right-wing polling company that has very little credibility with their polling. And to, to, to say that this applies to all black people is ludicrous. Well, then, And this guy – wait, let me finish. Yeah. This guy is working for private companies. They have a right to control – who they put out there to, that they pay to represent them. He should have known that before he said that free speech is free, but it has consequences. David, we'll give you and the last word. I, I got to run. Ernie Na- Anastas is here. Uh, we'll continue this discussion a, in a bit, but uh, I disagree. I com- just I disagree with everything you just said. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two. Although uh, the only aspect of what you just said that I agree with is that I don't think twenty million blacks believe this, uh, irrespective of the poll. But uh, we'll continue this in a bit. This is The Other Side of Midnight. The great Ernie Anastas joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I've said repeatedly that one of the greatest things about working in radio is that you so often get to meet and talk to folks that you've looked up to, folks that you've seen on television, seen in the movies, read their books, listened to on radio. But one of the magical things about working at this network and being on WABC in New York and all the other great stations that were on around the country is that you actually get the opportunity to work with and 
and refer to as a colleague people that you have admired and looked up to. And that certainly fits the bill with our next guest. Ernie Anastas has led a storied career and is leading. I don't want to refer to him in the past tense, is leading a storied career in broadcast journalism. He is an Emmy Award winning TV news anchor, a Hall of Fame broadcast journalist. He's currently hosting Positively Ernie on 77 WABC in New York and uh, doing a syndicated television feature called Positively America, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Ernie, it is great to see Frank, you. you're knocking me out here. What an intro. Uh, I am Man. I am blown away. I'm floored. I've gotten to interview you a bunch oh, of times boy. before, but yeah. this is the first time we've been in studio. It's great to have this you. This is fantastic. I mean, we're both, you know, on WABC, love the station, love the people here. You know, the important thing, too, and you and I just talked about it before sure. we went on, there's a great spirit here. And I think people who are working anywhere in any company, if you have a good attitude, a good positive feeling where you walk into a studio or to your office, doesn't that feel great? I couldn't agree more. (laughs) And, you know, there are two things that I think everybody that meets you has to ask you about. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get to one in a moment. The first is, and I don't want to sound patronizing, but you have been on television Mm -hmm. for half a century. Okay, sure. You look... Incredible! You look the same oh, as when exactly. I watched you growing up. What is the key uh, to? Is mm. it is it exercise? Is it diet? Is it a good plastic surgeon? Is no. it some combination? No, I, I. You know what? Honestly, I think the 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 answer to your question is attitude. First of all, I grew up in a very positive home. Uh, grandfather was a Greek Orthodox priest back in New Hampshire. Uh, we always had a good spirit in our home and uh, good genes. You know, my, my parents have lived, you know, a good life in the 90s. And I think that's important to have genes, but uh, good genes. But if you also have a good spirit, a good attitude, and I've always felt happy inside. And I think you can see that. It's a natural thing. And I think part of that is spirituality. I just think that I, I, I love people and I love life. And I have on my telephone, as soon as I open up my telephone, I'm going to show it to you right now. Here we go. Uh, hold on. Let me turn this off. Put it back on. Okay. You see that? It's the globe. Right. Okay. This is a NASA picture. And I look at this thing every day and I say to myself, Ernie, you are living on this planet. It's not on your teacher's desk, you know, a globe on a stand when you were in fifth grade. This is the real McCoy. And I always try to think of myself like right now you and I are talking and I'm saying I'm on the globe. I'm living here. So I think about creation. I think about the beauty of life and all of the things that have been made for us to enjoy. And I'm saying, this is great. This is a gift to me. And I want to give that gift back. It's so funny. When I spoke with William Shatner, he Mm. talked about how seeing the Earth from space changed his perspective to some extent on uh, where you fall in, uh, in the place of uh, the global civilization and the Mm -hmm. global village and that whole thing. You've been such a staple in broadcast journalism for so long. For for a lot of people, especially New Yorkers, yes. it's almost like you came with the television. They don't ever <laughs> remember a time where you weren't on television or on oh, radio. Wow. One of the things I think people may not fully understand the story of is how you got your start mm-hmm. in journalism. I know you didn't start in New York, no. but you are so identified with New York TV yes. stations, Channel 2, Channel 5, Channel 7. Mm-hmm. How did you break in in New York especially? Well, well I'll tell you a quick story. When I was a kid... Uh, Uh, Like about 10 years old, 11 years old, I used to sit underneath the kitchen table uh, back in New Hampshire, back in Nashua. 
and I would take the, the, uh, the radio and I would listen to it. And when the announcer would talk, I would turn it down and then I would talk. And then when the music came up, then I turned the music up. <laughs> and I was doing that when I was 10, 11 years old. Finally, at 13, I went downstairs in the basement and I built a little station. Uh, I got some two-by-fours, I got some sheets, whatever it was, and I got a couple of turntables and a microphone, and I built a little radio station, got the wires, and put them upstairs into the kitchen, and my mom would be cooking and listening to me. But I had all my buddies come over, and we did radio shows. So I loved it from the time I was like 13 years old. At 16, I went to the local radio station, WOTW, and I walked in the door, and I met the program director, Dick Corbin, and I said, Mr. Corbin, uh, could I sweep the floors, put the records away, and stuff like that? And he said, you know, you have a pretty good voice. He said, why don't you sit down? I sat down in front of a microphone. You know the way I can hear myself now in these earphones? Sure. You know, That was the first time that I really heard myself wow. for real. And I said, oh, my God, this is incredible. And I loved it. So I got a job. He said to me, I want you to do a talk show for teenagers. And I was 16 years old, Saturday morning discussion. And that was the beginning. And I started at 16, went to college in Boston, Northeastern University, was on the air uh, at 16, haven't been off. I've worked all these years in radio, television. So here's how I got to New York. Okay, I'm in radio, and I'm working at WRKO in Boston. Oh, sure. Great station. Absolutely. I was doing morning news, and I'm working at WRKO, having a wonderful time. And they said, Ernie, uh, what else do you want to do? And I said, yeah, I can do a little television. So I went downstairs. It was owned by RKO General. And I went downstairs, and I did a little TV work at Channel 7. And then they had a TV opening, or I should say a radio opening in Chicago at the Great Chicago Fire, WFYR. So I went out there. And while I was in, in Chicago, I went to a television station and did a little work at WLS, and I got the bug. And I said, i got to do television. This is really important. But here's a cute story. This is a cute story. When I was working in Boston, and you'll, you'll understand this, um, Ernie Anastas, uh, back in 1968, 69, uh, it was not cool. Too ethnic? Yeah, it was. At that time, you know, all the DJs, this was the number one station, 50,000 right. power watt station. And it was cool, you know, to be J.J. Jeffrey, Bobby Mitchell, you know, these guys. So my news director said, Ernie, would you like to be Ernie Andrews for a while? And I said, Ernie Andrews? He said, yeah. He said, you know, he said, it, it's going to sound nice on the air. He said, we're a big station. So I called my dad. I said, Dad, what do you think? He said, no. He said, it's your career. He said, just do it. So I went on the air, and I used the name Ernie Andrews, and uh, I, you know, I did that for several years. And then finally, I was going to work in television, and I went to Providence, Rhode Island, WPRI-TV. And the news director hired me, and the general manager brought me in, and we sat down. And he said, Ernie, you know, he said, I've been thinking about your name. I said, oh, this is great, because I decided I'm going to go back to my real name. And he said to me, yeah, he said, I've been thinking about your name. He said, Ernie, Ernie Andrews. I said, right. He said, how do you feel about Keith Andrews? <laughs> <laughs> I almost fell off the floor. I said, Keith Andrews? I said, Mr. Pfeiffer, I said, you know, this is too funny. I said, I, I've been thinking about my name. I said, but I want to go back and use my own name, Ernie Anastas. And he said, you're doing it. He said, I think that's great. He said, let's do it. And that was the beginning. It Clearly, it, it has worked. Uh, you have more Emmys than most people have uh, neckties, ah. right? And you've had the kind of uh, incredible career in journalism in New York that most people can only dream of. M almost all of it, though, as a TV anchor mm -hmm. anyway, has been on local TV stations. Yes. Now, I am sure the ratings that you've got on Channel 2, Channel 5, Channel mm -hmm. 7 over the years – 
there must have been all sorts of offers for you to uh, be a national TV anchor, mm-hmm. but you always chose to to stay local. I'm yeah. curious. You've done a lot of things nationally, sure. including what you're doing now, Positively America. Yep. But why did you make that decision to stay on local TV news? Okay. Well, first of all, I, I'm in Providence, Rhode Island, and then I get this offer to come to New York. And I'm at Channel 7, WABC-TV. And I'm, I'm really loving it. I mean, the people there are terrific, and I'm enjoying myself. And while I was there, I was asked to substitute on Good Morning America mm. with Joan London. So Joan and I would do it off and on, and I was having a good time. And there was interest, you know, for me to do more at GMA and at ABC. But I was doing so well at WABC Channel 7 in New York. They were very pleased with me, and I was happy there. And they said, Ernie, you know, we want you to make that choice. And I did. And I stayed at Channel 7 because I thought it was good. But I was doing some, you know, part-time work, if you will. Same thing happened at CBS. Uh, While I was anchoring at Channel 2, I did CBS this morning, substituted many times. And I enjoyed that. But I really liked liked the contact. Mm -hmm. I liked the, the, the communion that I had with the people in New York. And this is a great city. And I love this city. I can go anywhere, walk down the street, in any neighborhood, and someone will yell out, Ernie! Uh, oh, I don't doubt it. it and it, I love that. You know, it's personal. And, and that leads me to the next of the two questions that sure. I alluded to that everybody is curious about. One was, of course, how do you look the same? Most people think you have a Dorian Gray-style portrait <laughs> in, in your attic somewhere. No. The other has to do with the attitude that you described, yes. the relentless positivity. Now, local journalism, local TV news is especially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has so often been defined by covering crime. And one of the criticisms of it has been True. that it's been a, a police blotter. Mm-hmm. And yet you, both on air yeah. and off air, mm-hmm. you seem so incredibly positive. And unlike some people that may try to put on a front that they're positive and then they're screaming at people behind mm-hmm. the scenes, I can tell that you know it's not an act with you. Sure. What is the key to that attitude, to staying positive when the stories you're covering are tough, whether it's hurricanes, whether it's September 11th, whether it's blackouts, whether it's uh, the assassination of John Lennon, and staying positive in your personal life when you're in a business where there's, it seems like at at times there's a viper's nest around you. Yeah, well, you know, it's an interesting combination because, you know, uh, when I'm on the air, I've been on the air for many years reporting some horrible stories, painful stories, I mean, 9-11 and and so many others, Um, you feel something, you have to feel Mm. something. But at the same time, I remember when I was going to college, I didn't study journalism. I studied uh, sociology and anthropology. And the reason for that was because I felt human behavior, okay, sociology is what the news is about. These are real people. They're not numbers. They're not statistics. These are human beings. These are real individuals that I'm talking about. And that has always kept me anchored. I've always been thinking about the people that are involved in these stories. And because of that spirituality that I talked about, there's empathy. There's a care that I have, and there's a feeling that we're all in this together. And having a good home life is very important. Mm. So if you have a good home life, if you feel solid in what you're doing, if you believe in your family, if you believe in something that's higher, you know, better than, than, than what we have on this earth, I think that keeps you in a positive spirit. Um, one of the nicest compliments that was paid to me someone that I really admired, uh, she came over to me one day and she said, Ernie, here's how I feel about you doing the news. And I said, what is it? She said, if I have to hear bad news, I want to hear it from you. And I thought about that. And I said, you know what? That's my job. That's my mission. I'm a conduit. And I always wanted to make sure while I was on the air that I was sensitive to the stories, that when we had an opportunity to smile and have a little fun, I would do that. 
But when it was a serious story, I wanted to make sure that they understood that I felt something. I, I think, you know, Maya Angelou said it well. People may not remember what you said or what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Mm. And it's all about feelings. Look, you and I right now, we're in the studio, right? There's a feeling going on Absolutely. Here. We're having a good time. I, by the way, I, I'm thrilled. When I invited you on the program, I never uh, in dreamed that you'd be up for uh, coming in studio of at course, night like for this. You? I, I'm <laughs> really pleased and, and honored, quite frankly, that, you, that you've done so. Uh, we're talking with Ernie Anastas. If you haven't heard him yet with these uh, short-form Positively Ernie commentaries. You can check them out on wabcradio.com. They're really terrific. We're going to talk about that in a minute. You've also, uh, I, don't, I don't think experimented is the right word, but you have delved into the world of media ownership, mm-hmm. owning some radio stations yeah. uh, in New York and elsewhere. What is that like when you're used to creating the content and working for other people? How did you find the difference in attitude and approaching things differently as an owner of a media outlet? Okay. Uh, Owning a radio station was a dream. When I talked about being a little boy back in New Hampshire and building that little station in the basement, that was a dream. I kept saying, wouldn't it be nice to have a radio station of my own? And, And that dream, you know, stayed with me. So being in New York, being on the air, I had an opportunity to be able to go out and look for a station, and, and the management agreed and said it was okay. It was a non-compete. It was certainly small little radio stations in different markets, Saratoga, New York, and Massachusetts, and uh, Albany area. So I went up there, and I started looking at stations. The fun thing about that is that when you start planning what you're doing, the formats, you're like a kid again. Right, I can imagine. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a great line, when I grow up, I want to be another kid, okay? <laughs> and that was the feeling. I said, oh, my goodness, I'm playing with this thing all over again. So I changed call letters. I ended up creating the format, Star Radio and so forth, picked the music. I just loved doing it. And to me, it was wonderful. And the other thing that was fun was going into the community and doing a lot of the things that I did in the early days of broadcasting, ideas that were given to me by other people, uh, with programming, being involved in the community, having events, charity events, and so forth. And I created that spirit. And as a result, I had some success. And I had fun working with the people, motivating them and getting the feedback from them. I tell you something. Here's one story. That radio station that I mentioned, WOTW in Mm -hmm. Nashua, it came up for sale. And I, I couldn't believe it. And I said, oh, man, this is the station that I started at. And I bought it. Oh, wow. I mean, full circle, full circle. So I owned that station for a while. The, uh, the former governor of, uh, New Jer- of New Hampshire, rather, bought the station. And that was a kind of a nice thing. It was a transitional period. But I, that was so much fun for me. And ownership, to me, um, really gave me an opportunity to, to explore more of the talent and to work with people, and I encourage a lot of people who've gone on to other jobs. The world of radio, a little bit different from the world of television, and you've also had some success in the world of print. Mm. You're actually uh, not only used to telling the news to adults, but to children as well. You've been a pretty successful children's book author. What makes you decide when you're, it doesn't sound like you're lacking for things to do, Uh, running radio stations, owning radio stations, uh, doing multiple newscasts every day on television, mm-hmm. doing all these special programs that you've done over the years. Why write a children's book? What prompted that? Well, there were two books. Uh, back in 1983, I did a, a book called uh, Twixt, Teens Yesterday mm-hmm. and Today. Now, you'll remember I told you about that first talk show that I did, Saturday Morning Discussion. It was with young people, teenagers. I would interview young people at different high schools, talk about social issues, play the top ten songs. So I always had an interest in youth. 
So in 1983, I wrote a book about the history of teenagers in America. Uh, and it was fabulous, from the roaring 20s all the way up into the 80s. And I had a great time doing that. And I treated it like a television show because I had little quotes and mm. comments from people that I interviewed from different generations. And then I had a narration, and I had a whole bunch of photographs showing what it was like being a teenager in all these different decades. So that went on to the next thing, and I said, I want to do a children's book, Ernie and the Big News, The Adventures of a TV Reporter. And I had fun writing that story, and it was all about me. And if you look at the book, it's a little kid who's got a little radio station in the basement with his friends. And then he gets the big job in New York City, and he's covering all the news. So it's my story in, in book form. And we tied in with the St. Francis Food Pantries mm. and Shelters in New York. And we gave away uh, close to 20,000 books. I would go out to different schools throughout the area, and I would go into the auditorium speaking to 400 kids at a time and just, you know, telling them about why it's important for them uh, to make the world a better place. You know, what career do you want to have? I talked about my career, and I tell him a quick story. And I said, you know what? When I was about 14 years old, we had a career day, and everybody came in talking about different kinds of jobs. And I went to my school teacher there, uh, Miss Evelyn Ryan, and I said, Miss Ryan, how do you know what to do with your career? How do you know how to choose the right career? And she looked at me, and she used to call me Ernest. She said, Ernest, whatever you enjoy doing will be the avenue to your success. Hmm. And I'm 14 years old. I said, what does that mean? She said, what do you like to do in your spare time when you don't have to do anything? I said, I got a radio station in the basement. She said, that's it. So I told the kids that story. And you know what? They light up. They start raising their hands. I like, you know, goldfish. Maybe I'll be, you know, going to oceanography or something. It's fantastic. That is terrific. I love it. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, St. Francis Food Pantry. Our friend Joe Sano is always praising the great work that you've done in terms of raising money for some uh, very needy people with St. Francis Food Pantry. Talk to me about Positively Ernie. WABC airs every morning uh, and in the afternoon, and you can check out the podcast at wabcradio.com. Mm-hmm. Love these short-form commentaries. Sometimes it's just you giving tips on how to stay positive yep. or things you've learned about staying positive. Sometimes it's great mm-hmm. interviews you've done with people like Cousin Brucie, Dr. Jeffrey Gardier, <laughs> yeah. number of others. Why do this at this point? What are you hoping to get out of this? What are you hoping the listeners get out of this? You've done your homework. Well, <laughs> you, I, I listen. I know you regularly. Do. You really do. Uh, John Katzenmatithis, okay, great friend. I've known him for forty plus years, and we've known each other for a long time. Done a lot of different things together. He and I were talking, and then it came up, and I said, John, this would be a great opportunity for, for both of us to have some fun. So Positively Ernie is a spinoff from Positively America in many ways and what I was doing in New York on Fox 5. And I, I decided that I would do these little mini stories, two minutes on the air, talking about perhaps a problem like, let's say, bullying, uh, describing it briefly, but then what's being done to make it better? So the format basically is, okay, give me an issue, give me a problem, but how can we make it better? What improvements are being made? For years, I went on the air at 11 o'clock and saying good evening and then telling people why it wasn't. And I said, you know what? I'm going to turn that around. I'd always look for positive ways to do it. So the features are like that. So I'll do an interview with an expert about a a particular topic, find ways of how we can make life better. Then I go out on the street and Mm -hmm. I do my man on the street question. 
I'll ask somebody, does money really buy happiness? And I love doing that. And people just respond to it. I'm telling you, it's great to get their answers. And the interaction is fabulous. Then I do a little commentary. Um, I'll tell a quick story. I'll tell something that I think is important about staying positive. I had one on the air recently about the five balls. You know, in life, uh, there there was a a mentor talking to a young person and said, you know what, you're going to go through life pretty much doing the same thing that we all do. But, But let's do a visual. Consider yourself juggling the five imaginary balls in the air, and it's work, family, friends, health, and reputation. The work ball is a rubber ball. It's going to bounce. It's going to go everywhere. Don't worry about it. You'll settle down. Your career will be okay. Remember, work is a rubber ball. Family, friends, health, and your reputation, they're glass balls. You drop one. You chip it. it, You shatter it. Mm. So what are your values in life? The relationships that you have, what really is important to you, take care of that. Because a lot of people do nothing but just work. You know, there's a great line, that guy is so poor, all he has is money. And, you, <laughs> and, 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 and there's a lot of truth to that. You and I have been around. I've Absolutely. been with so many people. Uh, and, and if you don't have a sense of purpose in your life, and that's where it goes back. You talk about why I feel young or look young. It's purpose because I know why I'm here. I know why I'm here. Is there ever a moment where someone cuts you off in traffic and you and you curse <laughs> even to yourself? No. It's difficult for me to <laughs> yeah. imagine seeing you just just lose it and lose Ooh, your temper. Man. You know what? I'm human. There are times, and you're right. If you're driving around New York, especially right bus lanes, bike lanes. I mean, construction <laughs> restaurants in the street. I mean, it's amazing. So sometimes, yeah, you know, if somebody cuts me off, but I'm always a little careful because uh, sometimes uh, if I want to yell or scream, right, you remember. You're Ernie and Astis. Well, they'll turn around and they'll say, hi, Ernie. (laughs) Uh, Tell me about Positively. So if people haven't heard Positively Ernie yet, they can listen every morning at 945 on WABC. Or you can listen whenever you want to the podcast at WABCradio.com. But um, one of the things that you you do in addition to interviewing interesting people and telling interesting stories is there's, there's a lot of key takeaways for people. Now, right now it's the middle of the night for a lot of people, early morning for some. Mm -hmm. Some people are listening to us. They're alone. Maybe uh, they're recently retired. Maybe a loved one died. Uh, Maybe they're just lonely. What's a a lot of people listening have uh, written to me that they're blind or they're suffering with a disability and uh, they listen to us because they can't sleep or they're going through some sort of health issue. For somebody facing challenges, whether it's a health issue, whether it's Mm -hmm. an emotional one, a, a mental one, what can you offer them as a tip on how to stay positive and how to always find that silver lining in a gray cloud you know what i'd say remember that you are loved okay you're loved by our creator that's why you're here you're loved by someone else in this life and love is what makes the world go round and there is a future for us and i don't want people to think and worry too much because fear is the absence of faith if you're worrying about something you don't have the faith to me if someone is listening to us right now and i'm saying look In the end, the final thing that you're going to be thinking about, who did I love and who loved me? And so the message I give to whoever's listening is think about love. Um, Give love. If you give love, you're going to get it back. Find a way in your own mind to relax and feel the presence of our spirit. And, you know, when you're still and you're quiet, that's why a lot of people meditate. Listen to that inner voice and hear what that inner voice is telling you. But feel the love, because to me, it's the greatest force in the world. And that's what gives you peace. 
My only issue with the positively earning pieces that you've been doing, and I love a lot of the people that you've spoken to, uh, Cousin Brucie, Bobby Valentine is a Met fan, oh, yeah, uh, Jeffrey sure. Gardier, yep. many others, is that these uh, interviews are way too short. I, you yeah. always leave me wanting more. Is there any chance that uh, we might see you do a longer form yes. talk show on radio sometime Absolutely. soon? Absolutely. Uh, in, in a very short time, uh, we'll be on the air on weekends. Oh, great. I'll be doing a one-hour show live, and we'll have an opportunity to talk to a lot of guests for a much longer period of time on the air. And it's going to be an interesting mix. Uh, we're going to have some celebrities. We'll have some authors. We'll have some people who have a positive message and a little bit of the commentary. And there's a wonderful, wonderful lady. Her name is Patricia Stark. And Patricia has been an anchor on the Fox News Channel. She also has uh, written a book, Confidence. Uh, a terrific person. My, my wife and family and I have known her for a long time and her family. So she and I are going to do it together. And the chemistry oh, is great. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah, I can't really wait to have, hear that. Yeah, it's terrific. And, and that's going to be on the air, and we'll be doing more of the long form of interviews. I think you're going to like that show I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Positively America. Yes. I haven't seen this yet. This is a syndicated TV project yep. that you're doing. Yep. Uh, what's this about, and how can people see it? Okay. Uh, a qu- quick story. Uh, 2020, COVID. Right. And uh, I said, you know what? This is a tough time. Uh, we were thinking about doing the news from home and so forth. And I said, you know what? I want to take a little break here. So I took a year and I went to Harvard Business School, sat down, learned a lot about programming, leadership and so forth and came back. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to do the news. I'm going to create a program, which is basically what I'm talking about. Positive stories. So I produced 26 half hour shows, hmm. 26 half hour shows. And they're all with interviews, people talking about, you know, lifestyle, health, uh, careers, relationships. And so we put them together, and now we're on 180 stations around the country. We TV just, stations. TV stations. Wow. We just picked up um, the NBC station in Seattle, KING. And, uh, and it's growing, and I'm, I hope to be on the air in New York this fall. But it's a, it's a half-hour program on weekends, and I'm having fun with it. Well, Terrific. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great show. It's a great concert. Uh, it sounds great. Now, uh, speaking of television, you came of age in New York television at a time when local news was the be-all and end-all. Mm. That was appointment viewing for people, mm-hmm. whether it was 6 o'clock, whether it was uh, 10 p.m., 11 p.m., yep. 5 o'clock. And they were giants in those days, right? You had uh, <laughs> folks like Bill Butel, uh, folks Roger like Gabe Pressman, Pressman, Roger Grimsby. Roger, yep. Other than uh, Chuck Scarborough or Marvin and Marvin Scott these days, a lot of those giants are gone, either retired or yes. moved on to the great anchor yep. desk in the sky. <laughs> Is there anybody that you worked with or competed against in mm-hmm. those days, mm-hmm. the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, that you think are, was really special and a really unique talent in terms sure. of their ability to communicate and deliver the news? Two people that I really spent a lot of time with and admired, uh, Bill Butel. A wonderful human being. Bill was the uh, consummate professional. Uh, he was well-read. Uh, he had a personality. He was warm. He was sincere. Uh, you, you would have fallen in love with Bill, not only on the air, but off the air. And so Bill and I really got along well, and I admired him, and, and, and he and I just got along famously. The other guy that really I spent a lot of time with was Walter Cronkite. Uh, when I was at CBS, Walter was sort of a mentor. He, he did a tribute for me, and, and someday you'll have a chance to listen to it, but it was so nice, and I was just so honored by it. Walter just had a way of, of giving you the feeling that everything was good, everything was okay. He was the most trusted man in America, 
And I remember sitting down with Walter, and he had that fabulous voice. Hey, let me tell you a little story here now. And I said, Walter, you know, what do we do? How, how do we do this, and why is it so important? And he said, you know, he said, we're watchdogs. We're not attack dogs, and we're not lap dogs. Mm. We're watchdogs, and we bark, and we let the public out there listen to us and hear what we're saying and let them take the action. Uh, words like that, people like that, Butel, Grimsby, and so many others. And I, I, I also worked with Jim Jensen, who was also a, a master at his work. Um, these, are, these are role models. These are people that, that inspire you. And when I think about them, uh, I, I think of um, why a lot of young people should study them and find out why they were so good at what they did. You learn from the past. You've also been the recipient of many honorary doctorates over the mm-hmm. years from a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. real, really respected institutions of higher learning. Is there any way that you can get away with calling yourself doctor if you have an honorary doctorate? <laughs> I'll tell you what. I was in Boston getting an honorary degree at Northeastern University uh, after I graduated. And, and I registered because I was getting this honorary degree. I registered as doctor. I think they registered me because they, they put the room up. So it was Dr. Ernie Anastas. And uh, I'm in my room with my family, and the phone rings. And the person on the other end says, uh, is this Dr. Anastas? And uh, I said, yes, it is. Um, we have a problem. We have a medical issue here. <laughs> <laughs> I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so I've never used it. I'm very careful with that. <laughs> You can That's see where that funny. can happen, Absolutely. right? Oh, my God. But, no, I've, I've been very honored by all of that, and it's nice, and uh, it just makes me feel good. I, I think, I think I, I'll, I'll sort of finish with this. Irma Bombeck had a great line. She said, when I die and I face God, I'm going to say, I have no talent. I have no talent left. I used everything you gave me. Uh, that's a great note to end on. Uh, I have hours worth of things that I could discuss with you, and you got to come back if you're, you're willing. Great. You're great. Uh, it's a real treat to have you. Ernie Anastas, uh, check him out, uh, Positively America. It is a show that is sweeping the nation quite literally, and Positively Ernie, which if you're outside of the New York area, you can listen to at WABCradio.com. Ernie, we'll do this again soon. Thank you, Frank. You're the best. Thank you. you. Really are. Thank, Thank you. you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, one 800 848 That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to get to your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Two quick updates. One, on Friday, I mentioned during the Ask Frank Anything portion of the show 
someone said, hey, what about Donald Trump and um, Ron DeSantis as running mates for one another? And I said that that wasn't likely to happen because they're both from the same state now, and I didn't see Trump or DeSantis changing their residency to allow them to run. So I got an email uh, from someone on Friday, Betsy, who writes, Hi, yes, president and vice president may be from the same state. An elector from that state may not vote for both if both are from that elector state. Well, I feel like that's kind of splitting hairs. I mean, technically what she says is true, but my point remains the same. I mean, neither of them are going to say, oh, yeah, we don't want Florida's electoral votes because then they won't win the election. I mean, and then this person was arguing with me all weekend long. I said, I I really feel like that's a distinction without a difference. But technically, Betsy is right. You can have a running mate from the same state. You just then can't get any electoral votes from that state. And can we agree that neither Trump nor DeSantis is going to sacrifice the electoral votes from Florida? And a week ago, I was telling you about the publisher of the Roald Dahl books censoring them in a politically correct way. Well, after a great deal of backlash, they're going to do what some of you have actually suggested. They're going to release two different versions of the books. The classic version, a.k.a. the one that's been around for 70 years or 60 years, and this new version. I think that's not a bad way to go. You want to buy the PC version? Buy that. You want to buy the classic one? Buy that. So I'm happy uh, about that. We're going to get to your calls in a minute. 800-848-9222. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I think one of the things that has become increasingly clear over the last three years it's the, is that the pandemic lockdowns, while they were a disaster, they were a disaster for almost every facet of American society, and I'll extend it beyond America in the places where those lockdowns took place. They were a disaster economically. They were a disaster in terms of the supply chain, in terms of child abuse, in terms of stress, in terms of depression, in terms of drug use. But nobody bore the brunt of the pandemic lockdowns more than school children. The fact of the matter is, at-home learning For most children, not everybody, but for most children, not being in school and remote learning does not work as well, period. And it's one of the reasons that you're seeing students still struggling to keep up and they're struggling to make up for that lost year. So now as the COVID pandemic began, students logged into their remote classrooms All work, in effect, was homework. But whether or not students can complete it at home varied. For some, schoolwork became public library work or McDonald's parking lot work. Uh, Luis Torres, the principal of PS55 in New York, a predominantly low-income community elementary school in the South Bronx, told the publication Vox, and I've just linked to this article on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano Fan, 
that his school secured Chromebooks for students early in the pandemic, only to learn that some lived in shelters that blocked Wi-Fi for security reasons. Others who lived in housing projects with poor Internet reception did their schoolwork in laundromat laundromats. According to a 2021 Pew survey, 25 percent of lower income parents said their children at some point were unable to complete their schoolwork because they couldn't access a computer at home. Now, that's that all has to do with remote learning. The issues with remote learning were new, but they highlight a divide that has been there for 100 years in another form. Homework. Homework, homework, homework. I have to tell you, and I've just linked to this article, and I want you to read it when you can. Nobody knows what the point of homework is. That's the headline in Vox. I have to tell you, I have a long-time war on homework. I just didn't do it. That's the one consistent thing from the time I was in the first grade to the time I was in college. I didn't do homework. And um, if I didn't have homework factored into my grades, I would have had a 99 average. Okay? And I'm not saying that. And instead, my grades suffered significantly. Because all the classes that I did that took homework into account, I just didn't do it. I would go up to my room and pretend I was doing homework and I would sleep instead. Or I would read something else. I just hated it. I'm still almost, when I think about homework, I'm traumatized. Um, Over the past three years... In response to concerns about equity, schools across the country in Sacramento, Los Angeles, San Diego, Clark County, Nevada, big shout out to our friends on the Nevada Talk Radio Network. They made permanent changes to their homework policies that restricted how much homework could be given and how it could be graded after in-person learning resumed. And I agree completely on that. Three years into the pandemic, as districts And teachers reckon with COVID-era overhauls of teaching and learning. Schools are still reconsidering the purpose and place of homework. And the reporter for Vox writes the following. I first began to wonder if the homework abolition movement made sense after speaking with teachers in some Massachusetts public schools who argued that rather than help disadvantaged kids... Stringent homework restrictions communicated an attitude of low expectations. One, an English teacher, said she felt the school had just given up on trying to get the students to do work. Another argued that the restrictions that prohibit teachers from assigning take-home work that doesn't begin in class made it difficult to get through the foreign language curriculum. Teachers in other districts have raised formal concerns about about the homework abolition's ability to close gaps among students rather than widening them. And a lot of education experts share this view. Harris Cooper, a professor of psychology at Duke, who has studied homework efficacy for years, likened homework abolition to playing to the lowest common denominator. But here's the thing. The question of whether to abolish homework isn't the right question. It's what kind of work students are sent home with and where they can complete it. Chances are, if schools think more deeply about giving constructive work, time spent on homework will come down regardless. And here's the bottom line. And again, people have been debating this since 1901. 
the rise of this no homework movement during the COVID pandemic has tapped into long-running disagreements over homework's impact on students. The purpose and effectiveness of homework have been disputed for a century, more than a century. 1901, California, do you you ever hear about this? Listen to this. In 1901, California banned homework for students up to age 15, and they limited it for older students over concerns that it endangered a child's mental and physical health. It does! The newest iteration of the anti-homework argument contends that the current practice punishes students who lack support and rewards those with more resources, reinforcing what they call the myth of meritocracy. But there's still no research consensus on homework's effectiveness. No one can seem to agree on what the right metrics are. Much of the debate relies on anecdotes, intuition, or speculation. Researchers disagree on how much research even exists on the value of homework. Kathleen Budge, the co-author of Turning High Poverty Schools into High-Performing Schools and a professor at Boise State, told Vox that homework has been greatly researched. Denise Pope, a Stanford lecturer and leader of the education nonprofit Challenge Success said it's not a highly researched area because of some of the methodolo- the methodological problems. Experts who are more sympathetic to take-home assignments, they generally support what they call the 10-minute rule, a framework that estimates the ideal amount of home- homework on any given night by multiplying the student's grade by 10. So if you're a ninth grader, For an example, you would have about 90 minutes of work a night. Homework proponents say that while it's difficult to design randomized control studies to test homework's effectiveness, the vast majority of existing studies show a strong positive correlation between homework and high academic achievement for middle and high school students. Prominent critics of homework argue that these studies are not reliable, and they point to studies that suggest a neutral or negative effect on, on student performance. But both of them agree that there is little to no evidence for homework's effectiveness at an elementary school level. Though proponents often argue that it builds constructive habits for the future. What do you think? Where do you come down on the question of homework? Because now more and more localities are looking at limiting or abolishing it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I mean, I think everybody that's ever done homework realizes, and this was my frustration with it, so much of it is pointless and frustrating to complete. You know, um, I don't know how it is now with Internet and computers and everything like that. I just hated it. Other assignments really do help students learn. But for homework opponents, you know, uh, Alfie Cohn is the author of The Homework Myth, which challenges all the justifications for homework. He wrote to Vox, we're all familiar with the negative effects of homework, stress, exhaustion, family conflict. Oh, it's like it's almost difficult for me to read his quote because this all so comes back to me. The uh, the tears, the shouting matches with my parents, the 
trying to pretend that I was doing homework when I wasn't, the negotiating with teachers, the bargaining to let them get me make to make up assignments, me copying homeworks uh, from uh, classmates during lunch, uh, the the um, ho- trying to finish eight or nine late assignments in a single day, all of which were just just so tedious and did nothing to teach me. I mean, it's honestly it's difficult for me to read the quotes in this article because it all just hits so close to home for me. Um, so Alfie Cohn writes in, the, in this uh, piece to the Vox author, these effects may be most pronounced among low-income students. Now, I was a middle, middle-class student who had parents that were willing to help me and wanted to help me. Can't imagine if someone comes home to a household where there's no one there to help. So Alfie Cohn believes that students should make permanent any moratoria implemented during the pandemic, arguing that there are no positives at all to outweigh homework's downsides. Recent studies, he argues, show the benefits may not even materialize during high school. In the Marlboro Public Schools, which is a suburban district 45 miles, 45 minutes west of Boston, the school policy chair, Catherine Hennessy, described getting kids to complete their homework during remote education as a challenge, to say the least. Canceling homework might not do anything for the achievement gap, right? The critiques of homework are valid as far as they go, but at a certain point, arguments against homework can defy the common sense idea that to retain what they're learning, students need to practice of it. And I get that. That's why I think I come down to maybe not abolishing homework, but limiting it. I mean, there's just no reason a student should spend two hours on homework. Uh, to me, it's it, I don't want to call it torture, but it, to me, it's needless pain for students, teachers and their families of uh, both. I just, I am uh, a homework opponent to the nth degree. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Delilah is in Brooklyn. Hello, Delilah. Hi. Hi. Uh, I believe that uh, homework was done because the teachers were not qualified to teach what they had to teach. So they would give you homework. Because that's the first thing they would do, write the homework when you walk in the classroom. But at 81, I had teachers that were in their 30s, 40s, and maybe a little older. And what they taught was what they were. If I had an art teacher, she had been an artist. Mm -hmm. A music teacher was into music. I had good teachers. I, I enjoyed my teachers. So and and they taught us well. They taught us in the classroom. But I I did homework. I loved school, so homework wasn't a problem for me. But we didn't have much homework. Okay, well I think that and that's great. I'm so glad that you had such a good experience, Delilah. And I could tell just by speaking you for, to to you for a minute that uh, your teachers certainly did a pretty good job uh, creating a, a pretty intellectual person. Thank you for the call. Not all homework is created equal, right? Um, you know, despite the opposing sides in the so-called homework rule wars, most researchers make some of the same points, right? Uh, parents and school 
schools confuse rigor with workload. And they treat the volume of assignments basically as a proxy for quality of learning. So the homework defenders will write extensively about how plenty of it lacks, meaning homework, clear purpose. It requires the purchasing of unnecessary supplies, and it takes longer than it needs to. The homework opponents, um, they agree with those same points. So maybe if there was a better, smarter type of homework given, maybe you wouldn't see this degree of trauma. But uh, I think the one thing I don't think people can disagree with is that there's too much of it. I mean, there's no reason that a high school child should spend two, two and a half hours trying to do homework. I mean, what's the point of being in school? I mean, it's just, to me, it just, it boggles the mind. And I stand with the homework opponents that I don't see a lot of research that supports it being beneficial at all for elementary school students. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Kevin is on Long Island. Hello, Kevin. Hi. Hi. I think that uh, high school students should have three or four hours of homework a night. And that's based on my own experience. I went to a private high school where we were warned in advance that you'd be doing three hours of homework a night. It turned out to be more. And it was good. For example, I took four years of Latin. You have to go home and be able to translate the Latin by yourself. You have a class, which is good, and instruction by the teacher. But to really learn it, you have to be able to do it by yourself. The same thing was true in geometry class. You have instruction by the teacher, but to really learn it, you have to be able to go home and do it all by yourself. In English class, we had to produce an essay every week. You have to sit home and spend the time doing a few versions and do that by yourself. Right. And we don't have to go through the other subject, Kevin. I I totally appreciate that. And I'm wondering, though, the – and look, you seem like a very well-educated guy, too. It seems like it worked out well for you. Um, Three or four hours of homework every night, that that is time that is taken away from family – exercise, um, you know, independent reading for leisure. It's taken away from uh, sports and other team-building activities. Is that really the best use of a 13-year-old boy's time? Oh, yes. Rather than uh, people uh, fritter away a lot of that other time. Well, look, you won't get – I won't argue in favor of frittering, but I think there's a lot of other things that that children could be doing that aren't frittering. All right, well, we'll agree to disagree on that one, Kevin. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Tom is in Forest Hills. Hello, Tom. Yes. Uh, Hi, Frank. I'd like to say that your original comments – Tom, are you in any way related to Tom in the Bronx? No, it is me. Oh, I see. Okay, because yeah. Kenneth is claiming you're Tom from Forest Hills. Well, I, I have no idea about that. But interesting, anyway, interesting. No, I'm, Tom, I'm from the Bronx, naturally. It's me. Uh, the medical book, remember? I yes, gave you. no, enzyme book. How, yeah, that's, would, that's how, would, how would Kenneth have gotten the impression that you were Tom in Forest Hills? I haven't got any the slightest notion. Well, he's going to have a lot but of anyway, explanation. I'd like to say this. One time, I defended Reverend Moon, 
and uh, when he had News World newspaper, and my my letter to the editors it turned into uh, uh, an editorial. It made the front page of News World newspaper years ago. I defended Moon. Right, but so what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? I mean, what? Well, well meaning that I'm I'm going back to your original format. You know, in other words, uh, with Ernie Nastis, and that's my, uh, I've written other uh, articles, too, uh, letters to the editor turn into editorials, too. Interesting, interesting. All right, well. uh, But anyway, anyway, I defended Moon, that people were at him and everything, and I said, well, at least he's given the... The the substance was at least he's given the kids something to do that uh, that leave home. He's not leaving them to drugs, alcohol, and, uh, and uh, Charlie Manson types. Exactly, Tom. Thank you. Those those are the choices: Reverend Sun Young Moon or you know Charles Manson types. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Renee is in Queens. Hello, Renee. Yes, hello. Hi. Um, I like Dilbert, regardless of his comments. I want to keep him, I want him to remain in all the um, newspapers are, that he usually does his feature. Are, do you, um, if I can ask Renee, and obviously you don't have to answer, but uh, can I ask your race? What race are you? B-L-A-C-K. Okay, all right. <laughs> so you have a little bit more credibility than I do on this one. Do you do you think the comments that Scott Adams made were racist? When he said about uh, the white folks need to get it the hell away from yes. the black folks? Yes. Mm, no, I don't take it like that. You don't? Okay. No. All right. Um, now, um, but can you understand why others? We heard uh, David uh, last hour from the Bronx make a you know very articulate point that he found the remarks hurtful. Could you understand why some black people might think they're racist. Well, right now, it seems like when one person says something, everybody jumps on the bandwagon. And I don't think a lot of people really want to agree, but they just want to jump on it. They say maybe they'll lose their contacts and their friends, so they'll just go along. I don't think most people don't want to really go. I don't think so. Renee, that is such a good point that you bring, uh, bring up, because there is this rush to groupthink, right? There is this rush to say, oh, no, 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 I, I, I don't agree with that kind of thing. Um, and that's why I was glad that Elon Musk said what he said, because I, I agreed with a portion of it. But my point is that unless the cartoon is racist, then the cartoon should stay in the newspapers. True. In my opinion. Uh, Renee, thank you for the call. Appreciate you calling. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. First off, your uh, interview with Ernie was excellent. Oh, like thank always. you. Appreciate it. I, I, well, you are a great interviewer. I'm not, like Curtis would say, chewing your BBDs. Uh, you, you, just, you just have a knack for it, Frank. Oh, as far you. as um, with the um, homework, I was telling Kenny, my daughter plays sports, plays lacrosse and field hockey, and she's up until 12, 1 o'clock ah. doing homework. And then she's got to get up at 6.15 to go to school. Ah. I, I can understand a review. Yeah, I know. And uh, I can understand a review, maybe a half an hour, 
that they have every night but, or have a, a an extra class during the day where they could do their homework at the end of the day so there's somebody there. I mean, if the teachers aren't teaching the subject in school, there should be no reason that that, that other call said four hours of homework. I, I, but they don't understand. It's dumped on the parents. No, and, and you know what? And you're so right, Joe. And one, a lot of uh, students, especially in you know in in inner cities, aren't lucky enough to have uh, parents that are as available and able or willing to help as as your children are. That's number one. Number two is. And, and that's why I part company from that guy, and I think he's coming from a very good place, but I, I just disagree. I think if you, it's so much more important for people to learn things about life it, rather than just spend four hours doing rote memorization or, or just copying what's in a textbook to answer a question. Um, it, you know, I, I want to I raise a child that's a good citizen, that's physically fit, that has good relationships with people his own age, that knows what it's like to um, volunteer for, for charitable, civic uh, causes, that yep. knows what it's like to learn by working on a political campaign. Those are all things you really can't do if you're doing four hours of homework tonight. To me, I, honestly, I think it's cruel. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Like, my daughter helped with Lee Zeldin's campaign, and we want our kids to have a little bit of a life, you know, and it, they don't. You know, it's it's a shame. Have a good night, Frank. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. I don't think, and those of you that are on hold, whether you agree or disagree, doesn't matter to me. We'll get to everybody. But I don't think that the value of four hours of monotonous, tedious homework every night outweighs the need to sleep, to exercise, to participate in a team sport, to have time with friends, to spend time with family, uh, to volunteer. Uh, To me, that's all part of making you a well-rounded person. And I find it, I mean, did you hear, uh, honestly, it hurt me hearing Joe's description of what his daughter goes through. Um, And I know there's a whole cadre of people out there that are of the opinion, oh, we got to toughen these kids up. We got to show these kids what the workplace is like. Well, no, not at 13. No, we don't. We need to teach them what it's like to interact with human beings, what it's like to participate in sports, what it's like to work on a uh, campaign or volunteer at a blood drive or do something like that. To me, it's just... Uh, I I listened to that. I wouldn't send my child to a, a private school that promised three to four hours of, of homework a night. Absolutely not. I haven't discussed this with my wife yet, but uh, I will. I think she I think she views the sim- situation similarly. I hope she does. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You, you want to comment on anything we've covered thus far? Dilbert, homework. Ernie Anastas, you're welcome to. Uh, Roald Dahl, the Electoral College. Sky's the limit. Uh, no more guests for the rest of the show, so it's just you and me. Uh, we, the, why, I have a long list of stuff that I want to get to, but we'll try and get to as many of the subjects that you want to comment on as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight, the great David Lee Roth uh, singing Hot for Teacher. You know, most of my teachers were very old. I mean, I would say that I had two, maybe three that were kind of young and hot looking, but most of my teachers uh, I was not hot for in the in the least. Uh, talking about homework and a wide variety of other issues, 800-848-9222. Actually, phones are jammed, so I don't know why I'm giving the phone number, but the um, a lot of things on my mind today, but I will tell you this: one of the things that uh, has been frustrating to our household, and my son just turned fifteen months old on Saturday, so he's far from homework age. But uh, all the every parent I've ever met said, "Oh, it goes by like that." And certainly, I feel like yesterday he was born, so fifteen months has just flown by. But what I was going to say is one of the things that's been frustrating for us is in the last week or two. I don't know if they call this sleep regression or what the story is. My son has been getting up for the first time around 11, 1130. And then he gets up again around 4 a.m. And he just screams and cries. Now, sometimes he wants a bottle. But other times he just wants to be picked up and held. And I feel bad for my wife because, you know, she even she'll let him cry for a while but she's not going to let him cry all night. Ultimately, she does go in there and comfort him. And for his own sake and hers, tries to find out what his issue is. More often than not, he's just crying seemingly for the sake of crying and put him back to sleep. So I feel bad for her because she's losing maybe three or four, maybe three hours of sleep a night because you don't just snap your fingers, as you know, if you're up at this time. If you don't just snap your fingers and go back to sleep, you, you know, you got to get up and take care of him. So I, uh, when, on the weekend when I'm home at night, I try to, I try to look after him and make sure that if he needs anything at night to be a bottle or whatever the case may be, that I can look after him so my wife can sleep. But I feel bad during the week that she's got to kind of shoulder that burden on her own. So I'm hoping, uh, fingers crossed, literally hoping and praying that um, 
that tonight is a a good night for him because it's been it's been a struggle. Hey, speaking of homework and child rearing, sort of one of the things that I get frustrated by is when I'm watching Jeopardy and I don't know some of the state capitals. What what kills me even more is when a category is world capitals and I forget about not knowing the answer. The answers are capitals, you know, are cities that I've never even heard of. Kills me. So what I did this weekend, I bought two collections of flashcards and they're really meant for children at a third grade level. But. I am going to, one is for state capitals and one is for country capitals, you know, national capitals, but includes the flag of the country as well. I am going to, I I told my wife that I'm keeping this for when Carmine's older and we can have him study the state capitals. But the truth is, I'm going to use these to memorize every state capital by tomorrow and every world capital by next week. I'm going to have my wife quiz me every single day until I get all these state capitals and world capitals committed to memory. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joe in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Regarding the the Homer question, um, you really can't have a debate until you admit the fact that so much of the day for the kids in school are wasted. Mm. They they almost have to have homework. Like when you factor every minute of a day, including between classes, lunch, gym, and some of the other extracurricular stuff, there's really almost no time in a school day to learn pertinent information. My son came home one day and he said they spent uh, two days learning about the first homosexual hero of the Revolutionary War, which is which is fine, but that was the only topic. They learned about this guy's life in its entirety because he was the first. And I just thought, you know, they didn't really go into detail of anything else in the Revolutionary War except that. By the way, who was the guy, who but, was the first homosexual hero? I, I do not. I, I'd be lying if I told you because uh, I was just kind of like perplexed how he said that that's what they were learning. Um. So the is the homework then that that your child is being assigned? Is it a review of stuff that he's doing in school or learning in school, or it's all basically new material that they're not covering in school? To your point. To me, it seems like a lot of of new stuff, um, and it's all on computer now. It, it's it's not like what we think of homework. There's ways to cheat it. It's it's. I have four kids, and they go to a, what's considered a very good school district in New Jersey, and I just I don't see it. They're they're not the stuff they're learning is more from like me playing games in the car with them about spelling and math. You know, learning the, the little tricks of doing math. You know, mm-hmm. in your head as opposed. There's just so much wasted time in school. If they spent it truly learning about stuff that was important, yeah, no homework, definitely. Let them go home and play outside. Not that they would because they'd be on a computer. But um, it's it's just a nuanced question. But um, I just wish they spent more time in school learning. Well, Joe, I'm not going to disagree with you there. I I think, um, look, as I've seen in New York City, there are a lot of problems with the school system. And uh, I I won't disagree with you that uh, instruction could be better and the curriculum could be better focused and include things that that aren't included and exclude things that are currently being included. I, I wouldn't disagree with you there. I still just think, and thank you for the call, Joe. Best of luck to you. I just don't think it's such an unfair burden for a young person to spend all that time doing homework. I mean, I know, um, I don't know, 
I mean, that's just my view. 800-848-9222. I've talked enough, though. I'll, I'll let you be heard. Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah, good. How are you, Frankie? Great, um, thank you. It's a Gilbert story. I think he should. Yeah, we should just get him out, out of the situation here. He has to be taken off because someone who spreads hate and says such a word, you know, blacks and whites have to get away from each other. It's it's a horrifying. Well, Especially so, the guy who's it behind it. So, for instance, um, a lot of people believe and have have some strong reasons to believe that Michael Jackson was a pedophile. Does that mean we shouldn't play his music? That's um, that's something else, I think. Well, okay, okay. better example, better example then is uh, Kanye West. It, Kanye West went on a radio program and said he liked Hitler, okay? Um, does that mean people should not play his music? They, they shouldn't play his music because basically when you hear someone who has so much hate and he, he and he's so divided in the world, he, he has no place in the world. People like that don't have no place in the world. Yeah, see, I... Um, yeah, I, I think in my judgment, you have to separate uh, the art from the artist. Well, you don't have to. Well, you can do what you want. But in my view, I would like to separate the art uh, that someone creates from the person that creates it. I was thinking like this. Art is spiritual. Music is spiritual. So when we go into music, we go on a high... And it's a very spiritual thing. So we we believe in the musician. We look up to the musician. It has an effect. Everything has an effect. Well, so, a lot of times, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, a lot yeah. of times I'll hear a song or see a painting, and I have no idea who the singer is or who the painter is. And it doesn't affect my enjoyment of that work of art at all. You know, um, my, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of my favorite movies is, uh, is Citizen Kane. If Orson Welles was found, uh, to have said and done all sorts of abhorrent things that wouldn't change my enjoyment of that film. The same thing. Look, I love a lot of John Wayne films. It's come out that John Wayne has made some comments about, uh, about blacks and maybe even done some things, um, you know, uh, towards other ethnic groups that were not the best. I still like I still like the films. I, I think each work of art has to be judged on its own merit. But I look, I, I appreciate the fact that you uh, find the comments by an artist so objectionable. Yeah, Franco. Also about the kid getting up by night. I think maybe he's teething. You should use baby imbecile. You know, and thank, thanks, Simon. I don't think so. He's got a pretty full mouth of teeth already. He's got 16. You know, everything that I've read says that um, sleep regression can happen at this age. And maybe maybe that's what's going on here. It's more, I'm not that worried because, you know, eventually he does go to sleep he wakes up. He's in a pleasant mood. You know, he seems healthy, you know. But um, the I really worry about my wife because then after, you know, she's kind enough to let me sleep when I come home. She has to then go through her work day being tired and frustrated. So I feel bad for her. I feel bad that I'm not there for her at night to help uh, alleviate some of this. 800 that's 800-848-9222. By the way, we're talking also, If you, the last uh, caller and a previous caller mentioned the Dilbert situation. If you, hadn't, if you didn't hear the beginning of the show, Scott Adams is the creator of Dilbert. 
And he made some comments on his YouTube show. The comments are still up on YouTube, by the way. They have not been taken down. YouTube took down an interview that I did with Roger Stone because he used the words election fraud. But these comments are still up. So it goes to show you YouTube, which is pretty strict in terms of policing hate speech and things of that nature. This con- these comments are still up there. You could watch them yourself. Um, first, Scott Adams began by by explaining this Rasmussen poll. Uh, well, Rasmussen poll uh, had a uh, provocative little poll today. They said, uh, do you agree or disagree with the statement, uh, it's okay to be white? That was an actual question. Rasmussen asked you know, white and black voters, and, and probably others, uh, do you disagree or agree with the statement, it's okay to be white? 26% of blacks said uh, no. It's not okay to be white. 21% weren't sure. Add them together, that is 47% of black respondents were not willing to say it's okay to be white. That, that actually, that's like a real poll. This just happened. Did you have any idea? <laughs> would, would you have imagined that that could have happened? So then he gives the poll, and then he makes these comments, which have newspapers all over the country rushing to cancel him. And I'll be honest, I do think these comments that you're about to hear are racist. That being said, I still don't think his comic strip should be pulled. Um, He discusses this for a whole hour. I'm not going to play the whole hour. You can watch it on his YouTube channel if you want to see the full context of what he's saying. This is what uh, Scott Adams said that has him in hot water. So I realized, um, as you know, I've been identifying as black for a while, years now, because I like, you know, I like to be on the winning team. And I like to help. And I, I always thought, well, if you help the black community, that's sort of the biggest lever. You know, you, could, you can find the, the biggest benefit. So I thought, well, that's the hardest thing and the biggest benefit so I'd like to focus a lot of my life resources in helping black Americans. So much so that I started identifying as black to just be on the team I was helping. But it turns out that nearly half of that team uh, doesn't think uh, I'm okay to be white. Which is, of course, why I identified as black, cause so I could be on the winning team for a while. But I have to say... Uh, this is the first political poll that ever changed my activities. I don't know that that's ever happened before. Normally you see a poll, you just look at it, and you go, ah, whatever. (laughs) Oh, this is interesting what other people think. But as of today, I'm going to re-identify as white because I don't want to be a member of a hate group. I'd accidentally joined a hate group. So if if, nearly half of all blacks... Uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the away. So, not surprisingly, he knew those comments were going to create a stir, 
And uh, they absolutely did. You know, Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson, who's who's black, but very conservative and very critical of many different aspects of the black community. And I've interviewed him. I think he's a really interesting person to talk to, misguided on some things. But what he said is he, uh, he tweeted, this is the absolute truth what Scott Adams says. It's uh, what Scott Adams is saying here. He had to have known that all the coward newspapers would drop his Dilbert comic strip. I admire Scott Adams for doing it anyway. So Scott Adams responded to Jesse Lee Peterson's tweet. He said, I knew. So this is not a surprise for Scott Adams. This is not uh, Scott Adams thinking, oh, I'm just talking about the weather or telling why did the chicken cross the road jokes. And I'm shocked, shocked that people are pulling the column. He's acknowledging publicly that he knew these remarks were going to create a firestorm. And they have. I don't think the comic strip should be canceled. I also think homework should be limited. All right, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. How you doing out there? You ever seen to have one of those days where it just seems like everybody's getting on your case from your teacher all the way down to your best girlfriend? Well, you know, I used to have them just about all the time, but I found a way to get out of it. Let me tell you about it. of midnight i'm frank morano a sunday it was an interesting day we um my wife and i made the two-hour trek out to eastern long island to uh have brunch with my sister-in-law sharon and uh her husband james and their new baby eric who is one month old a very cute child and it was great to uh, spend some time with him although most of the time that he, we were there at brunch he slept, which uh, is something that I wish his cousin Carmine would do occasionally. But anyway, then we stop by, you know, most of my weekends are filled with one family obligation or another. And uh, honestly, it is challenging at times, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Because as difficult as it might be to meet, meet all these family obligations, I, it, you, you know, any relationship takes work. 
So then I stopped by my dad's and uh, my sister-in-law, Kat, who's married to my brother, Nick. They, they got married in Hawaii a couple of months ago. She She's over and she told me such an interesting story. And I found it so interesting. Maybe there's nothing to this, but I found it so interesting. I asked her to record a voicemail to me so that I could play it for you on the radio. So this is, and now usually when I play the voicemails from her, I like to disguise her voice and everything just for comedic purposes. But um, because I don't want it to distract from what she's saying, I'm going to play it for you just as is. Listen to this. This is a true conversation that I had with my sister-in-law, Kat, yesterday afternoon. This is Kat Morano calling in to talk about a dream I had last night. So I had this dream, and in my dream, I was in a bar in New York, a typical run-of-the-mill bar, not necessarily a bar that I know offhand. It was kind of a mishmash, I would say, of many bars I've been to in the city, dimly lit, um, you know, chill, jazz music, what have you. And in my dream, this bartender, she was probably in her mid-40s, blonde hair, and she kept looking at me in my dream, making eye contact and saying, my name is Jennifer Markham. Do not tell anyone I'm here. And it was various derivatives of that. My name is Jennifer Markham. Nobody can know I'm here. My name is Jennifer Markham. Don't tell anyone I'm here. And I woke up this morning and I remembered it. Um, and, you know, at first I was like, well, you know, do I know anyone by this name? Um, and I Googled the name just out of curiosity. And it turns out this woman, Jennifer Markham, is missing. Um, she's a missing woman. She's been reported as missing since 2003. Uh, she was last seen to the Denver airport, and no one has seen her since. There was a man that she had been dating that uh, confessed to killing her, but they've never found her body. And there's a theory that he confessed to killing her because it would have shortened his sentence because he was an informant, and maybe he was just saying that to get his sentence shortened when in reality she wasn't really dead. Um, But I found it to be really weird and creepy. Um, And I was looking on one site in particular that said she could be, if she's alive, in the Washington or New York City area. So that's my dream. Isn't that odd? She has a dream where uh, someone with blonde hair says, I'm Jennifer Markham, don't tell anyone I'm here. She doesn't know any Jennifer Markham. She doesn't know of any Jennifer Markham. So she Googles it, and this person's been missing for 20 years. And one of the theories that of where she could be is in the New York area. What would you do with that information? Now, look, I think what what's possible, and my brother Nick said, what could have happened is she paid attention to the news when she went missing 20 years ago, and it's just buried back in in the back of her subconscious somewhere. And, you know, the subconscious does strange things, and uh, and she uh, dreamt about it. The other thing is she might have been surfing the web or 
uh, had the television or the radio on in the background and a story about Jennifer Markham came on at some point or she came across this and she didn't really take it in, but it still resided back there in her subconscious. But isn't that strange? Now, um, both my stepmother and my brother urged her to call the FBI tip line to tell her about this, to tell the tip line about this dream, even though she doesn't really have much to add. She couldn't tell you what the bar is or anything like that. But isn't that odd that she's dreaming about a missing woman that she didn't know and doesn't remember hearing of from 20 years ago? I mean, I found that really eerie in a way. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Oh, good evening. Um, yeah, um, I, as a teacher, I used homework books and had the parents sign it. And I just gave examples of what we did during the day. And I just, you know, would say, just write me a little note if uh, your child had any problem with it. And also, you have to realize that, say, you were doing algebra or something, you know, some parents haven't done algebra in a while, and they may not totally understand it. So, uh, and and some parents would confess, listen, it's been a long time since I, you know, did this. I, I can't really explain it. And I would say, you know, okay, I took the pressure off it. So it made it a positive experience. Really what I wanted them to know is what your child's been doing. And a lot of times I would give conversations as homework. Uh, please talk about uh, your child. We read this story about such and such. Please talk about it. And if anything interesting happens, just write back. And it was just a real positive experience. The parents would always like, oh, I couldn't find the homework book last night. And, and you know, they were really looking forward to it. That sounds it great. It, I mean, that sounds like, to me, that's what homework should be. Right, right, right. Because I know as a child, I love reading. I'm like you, you know, like I have to move out because my books need a place to live. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, 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 but I can remember in school like hating book reports. And I'm thinking, I love reading. Why do I hate book reports? Because it just seemed like a throwaway task. What I did love, right. you know, to keep us busy, what I did, and they gave us such a short time to do it. And you, a lot of times you didn't get anything out of it. What I love doing is reading like Shakespeare together as a group or a story as a group. And we discussed it and we got into it. And then you would go home and talk to your parents about it. And that was the homework. Well, I think that approach, Pamela, would satiate a lot of critics on both sides of this debate. Thank you very much for sharing that. Hey, we're going to do commendations in just a minute. You want to know who's up? I'll tell you, at least give you my opinion. Uh, We'll continue with your calls. This is The Other Side of Midnight with you for another two hours or so. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I love Mondays. 
I know some of you may not, but hopefully what you're about to hear for the next 10 minutes or so will put an extra spring in your step this Monday. Although I know for a lot of you it's just kind of the end of Sunday, but for a lot of you it's the start of a brand new week. For some of you, you're just listening because you can't stay awake. Others listen by design to the podcast. By the way, you do do want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Uh, on iTunes or Google Podcasts or whatever, and just hit the subscribe button. It'll come to your phone each and every day. But however you listen, whether you listen on the radio, whether you listen to the live stream, any of the many great radio stations that are carrying this show from coast to coast, or whether you listen on the podcast, the fact remains the same, that each and every week at this time, we bring you... The Other Side of Midnight presents... I must commend United Airlines. United Airlines is making it easier for families who are looking to sit next to their younger children. The airline announced last week that its new seat map feature will help seat children under 12 years old next to an adult in their party for free. This includes customers who purchase basic economy tickets. This is great. I can't tell, I feel like every flight that I've been on, there's a situation where a child is uh, not able to get a seat next to their parent, and the parent has to speak to the person that the child's sitting next to. Oh, do you mind if we switch seats? And you're basically dependent upon the good nature of a stranger in order to do that. And I think the fact that United is doing this and doing this for free, I think that's wonderful. I want to commend... The Big Apple, that's right, Gotham, New York City, baby, my home city, the city that I hope to be a resident of my entire life. A new survey from Lawn Starter has named New York as the most glamorous city in this country. Look, New York's got a lot of problems, not the least of which the bars are mandated to close at four. You know, I just remembered literally just now. When I hung out with Mayor Adams a couple of weeks ago, that's the one issue I brought up with him. I said, look, you call this the city that doesn't sleep? You're out to all hours. Because um, we, we did actually end up talking about how when he would work th- this time of day, overnight hours as a cop. And, you know, we, we had some shared stories about being noc- nocturnal. And I said it would be nice if um, 5 a.m., 6 a.m. rolls around and, you know, I could take some of my colleagues for a drink. But the bars are not able to be open between 4 and 8 a.m. And the mayor said he agreed with me. But then I learned that apparently he tells everybody he agrees with them. So uh, I'm, not taking, I'm not expecting a change in that anytime soon. But so New York's got its problems. The, the fact of the matter is I agree with the results of this study or this survey, I should say, which found that New York is the most glamorous city in the country, taking the title ahead of Los Angeles and San Francisco Respectively, And if you want to um, see the whole results, just go to the website Lawn Starter. I want to commend Heinz. Yes, that's right. The folks that make the ketchup and 56 other varieties. Heinz is searching for a sailor who survived on ketchup while he was lost at sea. It's been nearly a month since the Colombian Navy's announcement that it had rescued a man, later identified as Elvis Francois, How cool of a name is that, by the way? If I ever choose to take a stage name, it just might be Elvis Francois, who he went missing at sea on uh, December in December of 2022, and he spent 24 days adrift. 
After being picked up by a merchant ship, the man's sailboat, which he had to constantly drain water from to prevent sinking, was abandoned. In a video released by the Naval Branch, the 47-year-old man said he relied on Maggi cubes, or Magi cubes, garlic powder, and a bottle of ketchup to survive. Very interesting, because when Paulie and Christopher were lost in the, uh, the woods in New Jersey in that Sopranos episode looking for that Russian guy, they were surviving on ketchup. Now, an iconic ketchup company, Heinz, is asking fans to help down Francois because they are going to buy this guy a new boat. So they've launched a hashtag on Instagram, hashtag find the ketchup boat guy. And uh, if they could find this guy, they're going to give him a boat, which I think is great. I hope they do find this guy and I hope he gets his boat. I want to commend... Ali Kakas, a firefighter in Turkey who has touched the hearts of animal lovers around the world by rescuing a cat that was trapped in rubble and adopting this cat. So this, you know, we see what's going on with Turkey and the earthquake and everything. And um, incidentally, all of that was predicted by Dr. Turi, who's been a guest on this show. Now he's in, immersed in a Facebook feud with John from Brooklyn, which is painful to watch. But anyway, Ali Kakas recovered this black and white cat after it had been trapped for 129 hours following Turkey's devastating earthquake. The grateful cat refused to leave his side after being given food and water as Ali continued to hunt for survivors in this uh, you know, part of Turkey. Ali and his colleagues named it Enkaz, E-N-K-A-Z, which is the Turkish word for debris, and treated it as their mascot in the hopes that its owner might turn up. Well, um, doesn't look like the owner is turning up. It looks like the owner died, unfortunately. And now this firefighter is adopting the cat. I think it's a wonderful story. I also think it's wonderful what Ashley Home Store is doing in Michigan. A family lost everything in a house fire earlier this month, and uh, they received a big surprise last week. A furniture shopping spree so that they could furnish their new home free of charge, thanks to Ashley Home Store. Now, I know every business... They, they're not altruistic necessarily for altruism's sake. They're doing this for free publicity. You know what? You're going to give a family that lost everything free furniture? I'm happy to give you some free publicity. Ashley Home Store, I do commend you. Thank you for that. I want to commend Asbury Park. Asbury Park has been named number one by Thrill List on the... Well, I guess it depends on how you count. I'm not sure if they were going east to west or if they were ranking them in order, but I'll I'll count it as number one. Thrill List named the 20 greatest beach towns in America, and they have named Asbury Park, New Jersey as the number one beach town in America. You know, there's a lot of beach communities that I like. Obviously, Cape May, my wife and I vacation there every year. Uh, Atlantic City is a great beach community, but I was only in Asbury Park once, and I have to tell you, we had such a great day there, and I can absolutely see why 
Thrill List has named this the greatest beach town in America. If you're curious about what other communities made the list, Nags Head, North Carolina, Cannon Beach, Oregon, Ocean City, Maryland, Anna Maria Island, Florida, Oahu, Hawaii, Rehoboth, Delaware, Santa Barbara, California, Tybee Island in Georgia, Folly Beach in South Carolina, Gulf Shores, Alabama, Maui in Hawaii, Narragansett in Rhode Island. They also make a great beer and a few others. But congratulations to you, Asbury Park. I have to commend exercise. You know, every week it seems like there is something new to cite as a benefit for exercise. And this week is no exception. University of South Australia researchers, they are calling for exercise to be a mainstay approach for managing depression as this new study shows that physical activity, exercise, is more effective than counseling or leading medications for depression. One and a half times more effective than counseling or medication. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that if you've been descri- you've been prescribed medication for depression that you flush it down the toilet. No. But if you are depressed whether clinically or otherwise, this is pretty compelling evidence that exercise is a great way to start turning your mood around. And don't you feel that way when you exercise? You go for a jog, you go for a bike ride, as tough as it might be um, to do it at the time, you feel you get a little bit of a buzz afterwards. So I uh, specifically, this was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. The review is the most comprehensive to date. It shows that physical activity is extremely beneficial, not just for improving symptoms of depression, but for improving symptoms of anxiety and distress specifically. The review showed that exercise interventions that were 12 weeks or shorter were the most effective at reducing mental health systems, highlighting the speed at which physical activity can make a change. I think this is great news, and this is yet another reason to incorporate exercise into uh, your regular routine, not just for your physical health, but from your, um, your mental health. I'll be the first to admit I don't get nearly enough exercise and uh, this has re- this has reinforced my resolve to try and get more exercise now um you know what they should prescribe as a treatment for depression just talking to Ernie Anastas for a half hour you know when you talk to Ernie Anastas I don't know if you feel this way I felt so much better about life I was feeling very very down about all the negativity that's out there. And then, I, you know, you go on the Internet, you read negativity there, you open up the newspaper, you read negativity there, you open up your email, the negativity there. It's so nice to be able to talk with Ernie Anastas, who's just such a nice guy. All right, uh, this might be somewhat controversial, but um, so be it. I am going to give a commendation, a formal commendation to... Junior Hernandez, I don't know if you've heard about the story, but a Harlem fishmonger was left battered, pardon the pun, during a fatal melee over shrimp at a Manhattan fish market. So, 
Francisco Morales was, said that there was a guy in his store trying to rob the store. And he says that, look, if he wasn't stealing, there would have been no problem. But this 38-year-old man was hurt during a, a chaotic situation at the Fish Express Fish Mart when Robert Bobby Burrell and his brother Malik entered the store to steal shrimp and they began assaulting him. So Junior Hernandez, in spite of the fact that there were two guys beating up his co-worker, Junior Hernandez intervened and he ultimately stabbed the Burrell brothers, killing the 25-year-old. Hernandez was initially charged with murder, but the charges were quickly reduced to assault. Um, This is very similar in a lot of ways to the Jose Alba case that we heard so much about. I have to say, I hope they drop the charges against this guy. This guy was intervening to help his co-worker and probably his friend. And, I mean... If you don't want to get stabbed, I hate to put it this way, but if you don't want to get stabbed, don't assault anyone. I could tell you, and I'm not saying this to be anything but descriptive, I carry, you know, two knives on me. One is more like a, a, a like a letter opener, if that. It's almost like a nail file. But the other is a real knife. And if you, um, you know, assault one of my coworkers, especially Noam Layton, you could expect to be stabbed. That's a guarantee. Um, so, Junior Hernandez, I'm glad the murder charges are dropped. And I for sticking up for a co-worker and a friend and being willing to put your physical life in danger and take on two guys, I do commend you. I must also commend three high school seniors from rural Texas, uh, specifically Callisburg High School. Three high school students from rural Texas who raised more than a quarter of a million dollars so their 80-year-old school custodian could retire again. Grayson Thurman, Marty Yusko, and Banner Tidwell launched a GoFundMe campaign for the janitor, Mr. James, on February 15th. Thurman posted a TikTok showing the elderly man cleaning the hallway with a link to the fundraiser, and within less than two weeks... The viral post raised more than $270,000 from 8,600 donors. This is what the post said, the text over the video. This is our 80-year-old janitor who had his rent raised and had to come back to work. Let's help. No one his age should have to be cleaning our messes up to continue to live. So uh, these are three wonderful young men. I wish I could give them more than just a commendation. I'd like to give them a hug. And uh, the fact that they went out of their way for this man, it's very nice. I have to give a commendation to Jeff Wrights. Jeff Wrights, or Jeff Reitz, is a stunning example in what a man, a man can do if he puts his mind to something. But to paraphrase John Stuart Mill, it gives no indication of what a man should do if he can put his mind to something. There are adults obsessed with Disney products and going to Disney. And then there's Jeff Wright's. Jeff Wright's fascination with Disney drove him to visit the company's world-famous theme park 
in Anaheim, California. That's not unusual, right? Well, he went every day for eight years, three months, and 13 days. He visited Disneyland every day for 2,995 days. As a result, the 50-year-old from uh, Huntington Beach, California, has earned himself an entry into the Guinness Book of World Records for having made the most consecutive visits to Disneyland ever. Can you believe that? And by the way, he wasn't trying to break the record. He was shocked when Guinness called him and informed him of the record he'd set. He just liked going to Disney. He uh, first started going there in 2012 when he was unemployed and he got an annual pass that had been a gift for him so he could leave his house, exercise, and break up the monotony of job job hunting. The visits boosted his spirits and before he knew it, he'd been going there for two months straight. And on his 60th day, Disneyland hosted a 24-hour event highlighting 2012 as a leap year, and he met a reporter who was covering the gathering. The reporter started following the social media posts Wrights would publish at the start of each of his trips to Disney. And the journalist eventually wrote an article about this guy, and it gained a lot of attention. After the media attention, Wrights began being recognized by other guests who would ask him for his autograph or to take a picture with him. And he also started to get to know the park's cast members or employees. He wondered how long he could keep it up and whether he had something special going. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. That's impressive. You do anything for 3,000 days in a row, I don't care what it is. That's remarkably impressive. All right, Jeff writes, I do commend you. If you have comments on anyone I have commended, you're welcome to offer them. At 1-800-848-9222, that's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Far Behind by Candlebox. This is actually still a Diana McCoy suggestion, the daughter of uh, former New York State Governor Betsy McCoy. And uh, she is, uh, you know, still celebrating her birthday a week later. What can you say? Great musical taste, I must say. It's pretty catchy. Not too bad. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So on Saturday, it's funny. We're going to get back to your uh, calls in a moment. On Saturday, um, my wife went to lunch with uh, two of her friends. And uh, she comes home and she's briefing me on the lunch. And she, she is talking her friends about what she has to do this weekend and what they have to do this weekend. And they're making small talk, you know. And she, my wife says to her friend, so what are you doing tomorrow? 
And both of them said, oh, nothing. And she said, oh, that sounds so nice. Because honestly, we have never had a weekend where we've had nothing to do in the entire time that we've been married. Because there are social commitments, there are professional commitments, there are, you know, family commitments. There's all sorts of things. So all the weekends tend to fill up pretty quickly. Who's visiting us? Who are we visiting? Who we're going somewhere? And it's all good. It's all good. Obviously, we wouldn't commit to these things if we uh, if we didn't want to do it. But the other day, I got an email from uh, a guy who is a very nice guy, and he throws these dinner parties. And I was at one of these dinner parties, and my wife came with me. We both had a good time. It was about two or three months ago. And we're kind enough to be invited back. So I forward my wife the email. It says, are you available on this date or that date? So I forward it, and uh, this is what my wife writes back. As nice as his invitation is, I'm not going to attend. There's too many social events, and I have to draw the line somewhere. A dinner party for no special reason hosted by someone I met once is the line. We have our neighbor's uh, party on this date. We don't have anything on the other date, but I want to keep it that way. You can attend if you want. And then uh, she writes, we owe so-and-so, some other friends of ours, a date sometime soon. So I feel bad because this guy really is eager to have us back for a dinner date. But I also feel bad for Rachel that clearly she doesn't want to go. So I don't really know how to politely beg out of this dinner date or if I should just go solo. So that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out. All right. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we're doing, Joe is in Rockland County. He's been holding a while. Hello, Joe. Hi. I was going to comment on the the homework, but I have something else I'd like to say. Be my guest, Joe. You can comment on both if you like. Okay. Uh, The balloons, the Chinese balloons. I'm very confused. They're telling us that they couldn't have transmitted any information to China because they were jamming the radios. They were also saying that the um, the balloons were guided, again, I assume, by radio. How could it be both? Yeah, uh, Joe, you got me. Uh, I find this whole episode with all these uh, UFOs that we've shot down completely confusing, completely inconsistent, and uh, very, very odd, honestly. Okay, good. Because I don't get it. I haven't no, heard anyone. No, I can't that. explain that to you. So sorry. Okay, especially since I have a background in electronic warfare and space vehicle navigation. I don't understand it. Anyway, moving on to other things. Um, I think that the homework is justified uh, if, if, if the United States is to compete with the Chinese and with other countries. Um, the spending time doing the homework. At the, on the higher grade, certainly, you're just not sitting back, you know, regurgitating what you read in the textbook. You're using that information to extrapolate and, and find answers to problems that are not necessarily mentioned in, in class or in the notebooks. Yeah, you know what? I, I hear what you're saying, Joe, and I think the uh, gentleman, Kevin, who called earlier on this, made a similar point, and I get it. 
It's maybe maybe if all of uh, the homework, so much of the homework that I'd been exposed to wasn't so monotonous and boring and not at all intellectually stimulating, maybe I would feel differently. But um, I, I don't. I really think we've got to re reimagine the whole homework game in this country. But, hey, look, you I don't have your academic bona fides by a long shot, Joe. Thank you. Bill is in New Jersey. Hello, Bill. Bill, uh, turn your radio off. We'll go. We'll get to you as soon as it's off. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Robert. Oh, hi. Hi, Robert. Why oh, do you sound surprised that we're talking to you? Oh, no. I was just kind of dozing a little bit, drifting off. All right. Well, I'm oh, sorry. To, I'm sorry to keep Wake you up. up here, Robert. What, what's on your mind? Education. Educate us, Robert. The right, the right amount of homework is good. I say no more than two hours. Now, I could speak for myself. I don't know how the education system is. Now, see, you see what happens when you have too much homework. Here's a guy that's been up all night doing homework, and now he's groggy, not even prepared for his phone call to me. Let's say introduced to concepts and mechanics. Facts um, and other things in the classroom, and then in the textbooks, we would go home, and our homework assignments would be based on what's in the textbook. We'd have to read half a chapter, maybe a whole chapter, and we would even be graded on the homework assignments. Good teachers. What they did was they motivated us and made us curious so that we wanted to learn. Yeah, that's such a good point, Robert. Yeah, yeah, your point. You have a very good point uh, about teachers showing kids how things are applied in the real world. Like, for example, a math teacher, he was teaching us trigonometry. And give us examples of how calculations are used in the real world. One was the curve under a highway overpass, like on the northern or southern state. Mm -hmm. How they would calculate that so there would be enough clearance in all the lanes for cars to pass under it. That was really good. When you're home, you're supposed to learn. On your own, too. Right. Well, and, and thank you, Robert. And and that's really where I come down in terms of the importance of giving children the opportunity to do other things, which I think is largely an opportunity that has been denied to them. So uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So on Friday... Because my wife and I had no plans, we, after we put our son to bed, we did uh, something that we have not done in a while. No, not that. No, um, We watched a motion picture. You know, we're rapidly closing in on the Academy Awards ceremony, and we have not seen most of the award-nominated films this year. So we'd like to at least see some b- between now and March 12th so that we know, you know, what to root for or 
We When they play clips, they're not totally alien to us. So we're trying to watch when time permits, and this was a weekend where we had some time, we're trying to watch as many of the films as possible. Obviously, there's certain, certain ones this year. And I used to try and watch every one in every category. This year, it's clear that I'm not getting there. So it's it's like triage. You got to pick. Okay, I'm going to watch this because I'm interested in that. I gotta, so I'm not really, I'm not at all interested in the Avatar film. Even if that wins, I really don't want to see it. It's just, I, I could tell, I don't think it's my thing. I'm sure it's great if you like that kind of thing, but um, it's it's just not for me. My wife, she doesn't like anything. She doesn't like war pictures, so she doesn't want to watch All Quiet on the Western Front. And I will, um, you know, probably try and watch that on my own if, if time permits. So what did we watch? We watched on Friday everything, everywhere, all at once. Have you heard about this picture? I had heard about it, because one, because it got so many nominations, but because a lot of the awards ceremonies were celebrating this because it has a mostly Asian cast. I really love this film. I got to tell you, I thought it was, it's, it's, I don't even know how to describe this film. You could describe it as a comedy. You could describe it as a drama. You could describe it as science fiction. You could, uh, you know, I just looked up on Wikipedia which I'm very frustrated with because there's still no Frank Morano Wikipedia entry. I looked, I'm mentioned in about a dozen Wikipedia entries, and yet, even though I'm mentioned a dozen times, no one says, oh, let's create a Wikipedia entry for Frank. But anyway, Wikipedia describes this picture, everything, everywhere, all at once, as an absurdist comedy drama film written and directed uh, by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, who are known collectively as Daniels. I don't even know how to describe the plot, because I almost think you're better off... I went in not really knowing anything. I think you're better off going in fresh. It is a little weird, but unlike... Even the New York Times review on it said that, unlike a lot of films that deal with these sort of themes, you can still enjoy it, even if you don't immediately understand what's going on. I thought it was great. Uh, David Ehrlich of IndieWire called the film an orgiastic work of slap-happy genius, which I thought was great. Visually, it's stunning. The music is stunning. The acting is great. It is two and a half hours, right? My wife did not like it as much as I did. I loved it. She thought it was okay. I think she enjoyed it, but she thought parts of it were way too uh, way too silly. Michelle Yeoh was in it. Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. Uh, there's some other interesting people in it. You know who's in this? An actor, and I hope I pronounce his name correctly, but an actor uh, by the name of K. Hui Kwan, also known as Jonathan Ki Kwan. He's a Vietnamese actor. You have seen him before. He hasn't been in anything you've seen in 30 years because he hasn't been in a movie in 27 years. You remember Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? He's the Asian kid in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. He's also in Goonies. He was in uh, Encino Man. He did some television back in the day. 
but he was not able to find acting work for years. And so anyway, he comes out of nowhere with a terrific performance in this film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Here he was on CBS Sunday Morning yesterday talking about how he got this role. I left, called my agent, and I said, I think I have a shot. I think it went well. I was so excited. I was like, yeah, yeah, please, please, let me know what they think, okay? Two months went by. Two months? Two months. <laughs> and as each day went by, my hope of landing the job slowly, slowly dissipated. But it was my wife as a key. You. She said, you will get this role. I said, how can you be so sure? And she said, because you said this role is written for you and you want it more than anything. You will get it. I thought that uh, it's a great story. He's now nominated for a Best Actor nominee nomination. I mean, you imagine that? The guy's not able to get work as an actor for almost three decades, and he's now nominated for a Best Actor Academy Award? That's tremendous. I enjoyed the picture very much. Maybe some, maybe it's a little too weird for some of you people, but uh, it, I thought it was cool. It, you know, it deals with the multiverse and parallel universes. Waymond, the main character who's played by Quan there, he is a uh, an immigrant, a Chinese immigrant who runs a laundromat. And the family's having some tough times. The laundromat is having some tough times. You know who else is in it? James Hong. Probably even though he's uh he's almost he's 94 years old, one of, probably the most famous Asian actor in America. He was in that Chinese restaurant episode of Seinfeld. Remember he says Seinfeld four, you know. Um, he's in Wayne's World. He's been in hundreds of movies over the years. He was in Kung Fu, Chinatown, Blade Runner. Uh, He's in it. He's great in it. I want to say he steals the show because everybody steals the show in this picture. But uh, I really enjoyed it. But then, so my wife didn't care for it. And then when I stopped by my dad's, uh, my father didn't care for it. My sister didn't care for it. So I was in the minority. But I really loved it. Did you see it uh, by any chance, Matt Plays? You didn't see it? And Kenneth, you didn't see it. Yeah. Um, so you're not a big movie goer, I guess. I am, but I don't, I'm not like I have to go see every Oscar-nominated movie. All but right, well. But now that I know that the kid from Goonies and, and Indiana Jones is in it, I got to go watch that. Yeah, he's really good. I didn't know that it was him until I looked it up uh, afterwards. But I thought it was uh, phenomenal. The other thing that I watched, when I was up with Carmine at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning on Saturday, and there was only so much of my friend Curtis Lee with that I could take, I put on the first episode of the new season of Picard. And I, li- I like Picard. You know, this was the key reason that I got Pow- Paramount Plus, formerly known as All Access, because I like the character of Picard and I like this- the show. I love the first season. Ah, the second season I thought was okay. I thought it got too... I don't like to use the term woke as it relates to Star Trek because if you look at the allegories and the stories that Star Trek was telling back in the 60s, by those standards, it was a very woke show. It dealt with issues like racism and uh, gender bias and uh, war and all sorts of other things 
in a manner that was very progressive at the time. Now, because of the way the world is, we look at those episodes and say, oh, of course, who, who's not against racism? Well, back then, it was a controversial thing. So I, I'm always hesitant to judge Star Trek dipping its toe into, the, into wokeness too harshly, but I thought season two was a little too much. A little too much. They, they were They were not making subtle commentaries about contemporary society. They were making overt commentaries on uh, American society. And one of the big villains in season two of Picard are, is the INS. The, the, if you, uh, no joke. I'm not going to, this is not a spoiler, but if you watch season two of Picard, the INS are bigger villains than the Borg are. No, no joke. That's absolutely the case. So I watched, I, I was not in any hurry to watch season three of Picard. And then I got two SMS text messages on this front that changed my level of enthusiasm. My friend, Eric Balson, who's one of my oldest friends, I think we go back to the third grade. He basically says uh, to me, because he knows I'm into Star Trek. He said, uh, Picard season three, episode one is, and then he gives two thumbs up. I said, really? I said, good. I'm looking forward to watching. He says, oh, yes, this season is going to blow the roof off the building. Then he adds, and this is saying a lot here, going to go ahead and say it's the best show on all of television. So, look, I trust Eric's judgment. And I got an SMS text message from our boss, El Capitan, John Katsimatidis, whose book I just bought, by the way. And uh, he's got a book signing if, if you're in the New York area and you want to get the book. On uh, Tuesday, Tuesday, February 28th, it's in the afternoon, so I hope nobody minds that I'm not going to be there, but I'm hoping to get my book signed at another time. But he's got this book signing on uh, uh, here in New York at, um, I'll, I'll tell you where you can get it. But, oh, yeah, it's uh, Tuesday, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., at the Barnes & Noble on 5th Avenue and 46th Street. This is right near the law office that I sleep at. I've been to book signings at this Barnes & Noble. It's a nice Barnes & Noble. So the book is called How Far Do You Want to Go? I expect my copy to arrive today. So uh, the book is officially out tomorrow, but you can get it on Amazon or wherever else. So anyway, John tells me that he watched Picard. And then aside from saying he can't believe how old some of the characters look, he said, this season is great so far. So I watched the first episode, and I have to tell you, so far both Eric and John are, are right. I I really enjoyed the first episode. I like the way that it's setting up the rest of the season. I like the way seeing the characters look old. I mean, if you think about it, we view the next generation as almost as if it just happened. But Next Generation debuted almost 40 years ago. 40 years ago. Think about that. So, I mean, makes sense that these characters are looking older. So uh, those were those were our experiences this weekend. Picard, which I watched solo, and, um, and uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which we watched together, which I really, really enjoyed. 800-848-9222. Kimberly is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Kimberly. Hi. How's it going? Thanks for having me on. Um, sure. I just wanted to share that... I think they're doing away with homework in Oregon. That's where I'm from. And this summer, my my neighbor and 
close friend was telling me that his 12 year old daughter was saying that their teachers just aren't giving out homework anymore. And we weren't sure. And like, I, we were like, okay, she's, she's lying. Right. And he's like, yeah, that's what I thought at first. But then I like checked and it, they're really just not doing homework. So I think they're doing away with it in some states. Well, yeah. Um, and I, I mentioned that earlier uh, and it was, you know, a little, a lot earlier. So I don't blame you if you missed it, but um I uh, I think that this homework abolition movement is getting a tremendous shot in the arm in part because of all the frustrations of parents and students that occurred during the pandemic. Yeah, Oregon is one state where they're looking at this. They're looking at this in Sacramento, in, part, in other cities in California, and in Clark County, Nevada. So I think, uh, you know, I think this is going to be a... Uh, a trend that uh, more and more municipalities look at. What brought you to the Bronx from Oregon, Kimberly? I know, right? Um, honestly, the Bronx found me. That's what I always say. Uh, you can't say that, Kimberly. You can't say that. Be careful. Um, but so, well, oh, yeah. so so good. What, what, so you came back here professionally? Yeah, and I'm giving a second shot at performance arts, or technically my very first go at performance arts. Wonderful. All right. Well, best of luck to you. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, what what brings you awake at this late hour? But whenever you're awake, give us a jingle once in a while. I appreciate it. Thank you, and I'll watch my mouth in the future. Thank you. G- good luck with all your efforts. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Kimberly. See, you could tell if someone's cursing to be a jerk, and you could tell if someone's cursing because it's the middle of the night, and that's how they speak. Right. So we cut Kimberly a little bit of slack there. All right. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Right, Matt, you'd agree with that assessment. Like she wasn't trying to be yeah, she was a smart speaking. aleck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um this is the other side of midnight. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. good song too another one that i've never heard this is called love tonight by it looks like shouse but you maintain it's oh it is shouse okay uh this is a dana marquee selection she suggests she uh, selected this for her birthday a week ago uh dana marquee is a new mom and uh, a woman who i thought was uh, flirting with me 16 years ago and uh, instead was just trying to sell me custom-made clothing. And the joke was on me because I bought it. And you know what? Uh, ultimately, I'm very happy about that because I have one suit that, uh, that I've kept. And uh, it's just great. It's my favorite suit. And uh, she is a very close friend of my favorite second cousin, Andrea. So there you have it. All right. 
800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we're talking about. You know, one of the things, I, I do want to mention this because, look, I try to be intellectually honest on this program. And what does that mean? That means sticking to a set of principles. And when people that you like violate those principles, you criticize them, right? And this is certainly the case with uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Now, I just tried to get an op-ed placed a week or two ago saying that Tulsi Gabbard should be the next president and that she should run for president as an independent candidate. I love her. I I just... um, I think she's great. I think it's rare that she talks about an issue that I disagree with. Okay. I'll put that in column A. That's where I'm coming from. But I've also said repeatedly that unless you're committing genocide or ethnic cleansing or committing a wide variety of hate crimes against millions of people, You should not be compared to Hitler or the Nazis unless you're calling yourself a Nazi. Like if you're a neo-Nazi that's protesting outside of the play parade or something along those lines. So I, I never thought I would see this. But Tulsi Gabbard was on the Fox News channel with Jesse Waters on, uh, I think, Friday. And she went there. She was talking about woke culture I, I just, I don't even like the term woke. Let's call it political correct culture, whatever. You know what it is, right? So she was talking about that, and she went and used the Nazi analogy. Here's what Tulsi Gabbard said, and I think we have a little bit of uh, Jesse Waters' reaction. What we're seeing here is their philosophy, identity, politics. And this is one of the main reasons why I left the Democratic Party, because you're seeing how their agenda of identity politics is directly undermining the traditional democratic values that were expressed so beautifully and clearly by Dr. Martin Luther King, that we should judge each other not based on the color of our skin, but based on our character. And yet, as you have displayed here over and over with example after example, they're proud to be judging people, hiring people, selecting people based on race, which is really, let's be clear, how serious of a problem this is. It's based on genetics, race, uh, based on your blood. Your and, and where do we see that connection? Well, these are the very same geneticist core principles embodied by Nazism Ugh. and Adolf Hitler. Ugh. It's just, had she just stopped that sentence 10 seconds earlier, I would be applauding her. And then it's just, you know, there's something called Godwin's theorem, which says that the longer any, the longer any argument goes, eventually someone will mention Hitler or the Nazis. And immediately the corollary to Godwin's theorem is that uh, once you mention Hitler or the Nazis, you immediately lose the argument. I uh, I, I I cringed when when she said that. I, I still like her, but I hate when people do that because to me, what the Nazis did was so horrible and totally unique in human history that almost nothing compares to that. And so, once you start comparing 
political opponents, no matter how bad they are, to the Nazis, it somehow makes the Nazis in the in the framework of that conversation, it somehow makes their behavior not as bad because, oh, yeah, uh, the woke Democrats, whatever you want to call it, woke Democrats and the Nazis, they believe this. It's just the Nazis should not be compared to any contemporary American political party. I mean, I get what she means. I just wish she wouldn't have said that. Um, I, th- I thought that was a very poor analogy to make. There, plus, there's so many analogies out there that could have made her point without the backlash that she's going to get for that comment. I, I thought that was really unfortunate. 800-848-9222. Janet's in Baltimore. Hello, Janet. Hello. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. I'm thinking about uh, the homework. I'm thinking of putting myself back in school. 68. Right. Monday... Monday, you're fresh from the weekend. So I think homework on Mondays is good. Um, and then let's say Tuesday, not Tuesday, skip Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then I think the weekend, wait, there's another day, maybe Monday, Wednesday, and and then Friday and assignments for the weekend. Because when you get, you know, what happens when you get to college and you have all this work to do? And you, you know, you haven't. So your point, your point, basically, Janet, is that people need to build those habits early in life so that when the, when it comes to college, they're ready. Yeah, and also I learn by uh, rote. I don't know. Some people learn by rule, but repeating me, so you repeat. So I think, yeah, I think uh, Monday, Wednesday, and then the weekend. Okay. Hey, well, yeah, it, it, yeah. look. My beef isn't so much homework as much as useless and tedious homework. So, I, look, uh, Janet, it's um, I commend you for continuing your education. That's great. That's great that you're doing that. And uh, I'd like to follow in your footsteps one of these days. Pete's on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hi. How you doing, Frank? Yeah, about the homework. You know, my daughter, when she got to about seventh grade, I'll tell you, I couldn't even, you know, I could do the math for her, but I couldn't do the formula, what they did. And I was doing the old stuff that we did. And I actually had... Pete, what's first, going on there? What, do you got a I, motorcycle revving uh, over there? What, no, what are you doing? Okay, hold on. I'm going to pull over. I was feeding my cat colony before the snowstorm. I took care of everybody. Oh, that's and hey, I uh, Pete, I'm going to put you yeah. on hold just so you don't have to rush through your comment. And we'll get to you after the top of the hour, okay? Hang, hang on. Feed those cats, you know. That's right. Uh, uh, you know, we, people don't think when it's inclement weather, the cats are affected by this. So I'm going to see what my wife's going to do. They say it may snow in New York today. So uh, we've got a whole bunch of cats that she's taking care of outside our house. All right. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Do you remember about two years ago when Lady Gaga's uh, two French bulldogs were stolen? Oh, by the way, her dog walker was also shot, but nobody talked about that. They talked about the fact that her dogs were stolen. But it was a big deal. Big deal. The whole world stopped. Right? I mean, <laughs> and again, it's a, I'm a dog lover. It's a traumatic thing. To have a dog go missing, especially to have a dog dog-napped, for anybody, but especially if you're a celebrity. So what did Lady Gaga do? Lady Gaga, you remember this, she did what I think a lot of people who love their pet and have millions of dollars would do under a similar situation. She came out. Now, keep in mind the circumstances here. The dog walker was shot. The Bulldogs were stolen. So Lady Gaga comes out. Surefire way to get your dogs back. What would you do? You offer a reward. So Lady Gaga offers a $500,000 reward. Half million dollar reward. She posted it on social media. She posted it, uh, you know, the news report. We talked about it at the time. It was a big deal. And so it worked. A woman, Jennifer McBride, turns the dogs in. It works. Lady Gaga gets her dogs back, and it turns out to be a little bit more of a kink in the armor. The woman who turned the dogs in looks like she was involved in this dog napping conspiracy. She was one of five co-defendants charged in connection with the theft of these prized French bulldogs two years ago. Lady Gaga's dog walker, Ryan Fisher, was shot and wounded. McBride, this woman, the woman that turned the dogs in, pleaded no contest in December to receiving stolen property in connection with the theft. So, why are we talking about this? Well, here's why. Jennifer McBride did not get her reward. Now, some people might say, of course she didn't get the reward. She's part of what went on. She was part of this conspiracy to kidnap Lady Gaga's French bulldogs. Well, now, Jennifer McBride is suing Lady Gaga. The woman, under you heard me correctly, the very woman who was charged in connection with the theft of Lady Gaga's prized French bulldogs who were dognapped at gunpoint in Hollywood is suing Lady Gaga for alleging that she was denied a $500,000 no-questions-asked reward according to a complaint on Friday. And it gets better. She's not just suing for $500,000. In addition to the reward money, she's seeking no less than $1.5 million in damages as well as unspecified general damages. McBride alleges that Lady Gaga, whose real name is Stephanie Germanata, announced the half-million-dollar reward through all the channels that I just mentioned, and McBride 
is claiming she was entitled to the reward for having delivered the dogs to the Los Angeles Police Olympic Community Station two days after they were taken. The lawsuit alleges Lady Gaga never intended to pay the no-questions-asked reward money. Instead, having law enforcement ask McBride questions about the return of the Bulldogs. As a result, McBride endured pain and suffering, mental anguish, and loss of enjoyment of life. McBride, who police said reported that she found the dogs and responded to a reward email to return them, was charged with one count each of being an accessory after the fact and receiving stolen property. She pleaded no contest in December, and uh, that's that. Now, Los Angeles County Deputy DA Michelle Hansley said any payout from a lawsuit would be considered restitution for Lady Gaga, who, along with her wounded dog walker, were victims of a crime. Quote, It was clear from the evidence presented to the grand jury that Miss McBride knew the dogs have been stolen in a violent robbery in which Ryan Fisher had been grievously injured. It was also clear from the evidence that McBride had known at least two of her co-conspirators for years. If Lady Gaga suffers a financial loss by paying that reward, she will qualify as a victim of crime under California law, and the people will be obligated by law to seek restitution in court for that loss from each and every defendant in the case. Now... The only reason, I believe, the only reason Lady Gaga got her dogs back is because she offered that reward. She got the dogs back. The reward worked. She should have to pay it. And if the LADA's office wants to seek restitution against Jennifer McBride, then let them seek restitution. Now, I mean, look, if Jennifer McBride was really part of this conspiracy to steal these dogs, um, shame on her. And look, the grand jury apparently found evidence that she was. Let the DA go after her. But a no-questions-asked reward is just that, a no-questions-asked reward. The whole idea of putting out a reward is that it's like amnesty. The person that comes forward just gets the money. They don't get to, you know, they don't they don't have to get questioned by cops. And yet that that's what happened here. So I, while I think Jennifer McBride is probably a bad person and certainly seems pretty greedy, I think she's right. I think she is legally, morally, and ethically right. I think she should get this. I don't know about the additional one and a half million dollars, but she should get the five hundred thousand dollar reward that was promised to her. What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. And now, without further ado, is the exciting conclusion of a telephone call from Pete on Staten Island. Hello there, Pete. Hey Frank, I uh, got out of the 280Z. I had to borrow my daughter's uh, husband's car. That's why it was noise. I apologize. Uh, about with that Lady Gaga thing, you know, when I'm at a night feed of my colony of cats, I run across a lot of signs, reward for an animal, a dog, or a cat. And I don't pay too much mind, but when I do think that I might have saw the animal where my, uh, you know, feral cats are, I do call up, and a lot of times, unfortunately, it's either a husband or a boyfriend 
that takes the cat or dog for a ride without a rug and without a shovel. So uh, I usually don't, but there was a reward that somebody offered that I found and I told them to send the money to the Silver Foundation or whatever charity they like, because I'm not out to do this stuff. I mean, I'm out to help the animals, but I'm not, I'm not a, 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 you know, like a walker. Right. We we understand that Pete, but should Lady Gaga um, have to pay up this reward? Right. She wouldn't have got the animals back if she didn't, you know, and she should have more compassion for the dog walk. I mean, if she was an employee, you know, for us. And uh, that's it. I wanted to say I'm going to be up Mount Sinai. My my wife's having major surgery. My eye surgery went very, very well. They had to do the cornea. Yeah. So I'm finally seeing out of my right eye. But the doctor said she seemed uh, this was the worst case she seen. And in Haiti, where she does volunteer work. Oh, so that's boy. That's the deal. Jeez. Yeah, and Anthony from Grimaldi's is sending over pizzas to the staff and lunch for me because it'll be an all-day affair at Mount Sinai. So I uh, hope it all, everything goes well. I'm, my wife's very optimistic. Well, and when is it? Happy. When is it? Uh, it's going to be this afternoon. We're oh, gonna be oh there okay. Well, good luck. you got to call us and let us know how it goes. I will. Thank you so much. And to, my, to the listeners out there, don't let your cat rack go long because the longer it goes, it's a simple procedure. You know, it hurts a little bit, but you get over it. I, a wisdom tooth is much worse than what that procedure is, so don't let it go. That's good advice, Pete. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've known people that have had cataracts, and uh, they uh, they have been able to, you're right, get it early on, and, uh, you know, so be it. It's a much better situation. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. One gentleman just sent me an SMS text message, and if you want to send me an SMS text message, you can at eight one six eight Morano. That's eight one six eight Morano. Robert writes: Considering the woman was involved in crime, she is not entitled to anything. Well, I don't agree. I think you offer a no questions asked reward, and then have the police ask questions. Not only do I think she should pay because she promised it and offered it, and that's the only reason she got her dogs back, but I do, the next time there's an award, a reward like this, and somebody comes across, maybe it's not a pet, whatever the case may be, whatever people, you know, have information on or whatever the case may be, I wonder if they're going to be reluctant to come forward and say, well... Not only did that lady not get her reward, which was supposed to be pretty hefty, but she ended up getting arrested? No, no, no thank you. I'm going to keep this stolen property that's come into my possession. I think she should have to pay it. 800-848-9222. What do you think, Leo, on the Upper West Side? I'm today on Upper East Side. Frank, I'm absolutely on your side. She should pay the $500,000 as promised. Maybe, maybe this is as far as I would be willing to make compromise. She should, she may, can put it in some escrow account. If she wants to sue back these people, including this, this rewarded woman, but she definitely should pay. It. And she actually screwed up for other celebrities. If, if some dog's going to be stolen, these people is going to make better goulash then get uh, then try to return it and get actually in a jail because of it. Have a nice day, Frank. Wait, but Leo, did you say these people are going to make better goulash? 
<laughs> yeah. You know how many people on the world eat dogs? They make a stew out of them. Oh. So if they're going to have the choice, I'm oh, going to retire for reward. Oh, and Leo. I'm going to end it up in the jail. They better going to do, you know, I, I don't mean it. Uh, I, I hear yeah, no, I hear you. I don't even want to think about that. Oh, oh, oh. Can't even think about that. 800-848-9222. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello. Yes, good morning. Good, good morning. morning. I I I have to disagree with you on this, bro. How uh, dare you? I, I, yeah, I know, I know. Sorry about that. Uh, it's it would be setting up a precedent that would I understand about well, people may not want to return things because they don't believe in the the reward. But what's worse is people would purposely be kidnapping either animals or children, and then waiting a day or two for the reward to come out, and then bringing the child back with no questions asked. It would be a cottage industry. I mean, what would stop someone from taking a little car mine, waiting for a day for you to go, I'll give you 500000 no questions asked, and they come back, no questions asked. It, it would be like, okay, this is how we make a living, because there's no questions asked. No, there's got to be questions asked. There's no prosecution, but no, I, I think it would just really set up a bad pre- – the re- Israelis do not negotiate with terrorists because they know what would happen. There'd be terrorists all over the place. If you do not negotiate, they know, oh, I better not do it. It's the same thing with this. It's like, oh, no, if I steal something and then bring it back, there's going to be questions. Right. Well, um, Americans are don't negotiate with terrorists either. Oh, I thought we did. No, no, no. That uh, You might have an individual family member that uh, tries to come up with a ransom, say. But, no, the official, uh, the official policy of the government is that we won't pay uh, ransom. Now, um, it's different when it's, you know, governments, but uh, right. your point's well taken, Rick. Thank you. I hear what you're saying, but, and that's precisely why, everything that Rick just said is precisely why law enforcement does not like to get into the ransom business. And uh, I think that, um, you know, it's just, she promised, no questions asked reward. And she didn't pay. You got to pay. And if the DA wants to seek restitution, fine. Seek it. But come on. Rick was kind of working on the premise that everything's going to be a no questions asked reward. Right. Lady Gaga offered a no questions asked right. reward. So I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think about, you know, because I get my law degree from People's Court and Judge Judy when I talk right. about clean hands, meaning like, if you go to buy cocaine for $100 and the dealer gives you powder, you can't sue the dealer for the $100. This isn't that situation. This was the whole point of a reward. A no is, questions asked reward. Is to get the person really who even stole the dogs right. exactly. to give you the dogs back yeah. and said, hey, listen, we don't care how you got them or what you did or whatever. Here, get, give us the dogs and we'll, get, we'll give you a reward. How many times... Have you been in like in school and something got stolen or yeah. wherever? And I go, oh, listen, just return it. No questions asked. You won't get in trouble. We just want to return it. Right. Well, it's the I, same I, thing. I've done that. I've offered a reward when like one of my a phone charger has gone missing or something like that. I say no. You know, no questions asked. I'm offering a reward, and uh, you know, me, and it's targeted really specifically to the bad actors. So um, I think she should have to pay. I really, I feel strongly about that. 800-848-9222. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. You know, this is one of those stories, coincidentally, this Lady Gaga story. I'm just looking now. Both my sister-in-law, Sharon, 
and my brother-in-law, David, they live in different coasts, one in New York, one in California. Both of them sent that story to me, thinking that I would like it. And sure enough, both of them were right. So uh, I completely agree uh, with both of them. I did want to mention this before we ran out of time. I We went to bed early on Saturday uh, because after watching everything everywhere all at once, um, which is two and a half hours long, we didn't have that much energy left. So went to bed by 10, 30, 11, I think. I think by 11. So I did not stay up for Saturday Night Live. Honestly, I've kind of so gotten out of the habit of watching Saturday Night Live that I don't even think to put it on. However, had I known that this was going to be the season um, finale, which I think it was, or had I known Woody Harrelson was hosting, he I would have watched. I would have watched. Woody Harrelson is doing a whole promotional tour now because he's got a movie coming out in a couple of weeks called Champions. I think he's in uh, one of the Academy Award-nominated movies. Uh, it's called uh, Triangle of Sadness, which I haven't seen yet, but I've heard good things about. And um, I like Woody Harrelson. I think he is a terrific actor, and he's kind of a you know kind of my kind of quirky. He's really into marijuana, which I am not, but um, whatever. Different strokes for different folks. His uh, so I love Cheers, but he's a great actor, and I would have watched that. I known he was going to be on. He's also very. He's almost like a new new neo hippie. I'll describe him as. And he did something very interesting in his monologue on Saturday Night Live. He, I've been a fan of Woody's since Cheers. And I think he's hysterical. He was on the last season of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. I thought he was phenomenal in that. He, I just watched his opening monologue right before the show. And I thought it was okay. Not great. But, it was there. but honestly, eh as far as Saturday Night Live goes these days, is a pretty good standard. But he made one um, joke that didn't get a lot of laughs. And I'm wondering if it was even in the script or if he insisted on putting it in the script because the crowd didn't seem into it. I'm going to play it for you in a second. But he did this monologue. It was about six and a half minutes in all. It was filled with references to his use of marijuana. And look, he was on CBS Sunday Morning yesterday. Do, they did a profile on him and uh, with Ben Mankiewicz. Oh, half the profile was about how much he enjoys smoking marijuana. So this is a guy that has a lot of enthusiasm for marijuana. And that was evident in the uh, monologue. So he was on the show promoting the upcoming movie Champions. And he tells a joke where, well, this is what he said. I'll I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. This is what uh, Woody Harrelson said hosting Saturday Night Live on Saturday. So the movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes and people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is going to believe that crazy idea of being forced to do drugs? I do that voluntarily all day long. Actually, listening to the sound there, it did sound like there were more laughs, but they were kind of scattered laughs. 
And um, the headlines have been killing him on this. So basically, he's saying that this was some sort of cabal that the drug companies paid off the politicians and everyone else uh, to not let anyone out of their homes until they took the drug, meaning the COVID vaccine. Variety. Woody Harrelson's Saturday Night Live monologue makes COVID conspiracy jokes. Huffington Post. Woody Harrelson rambles about weed anti-vax conspiracy in SNL monologue. Rolling Stone. Woody Harrelson spreads anti-vax conspiracies during SNL monologue. Daily Beast. Woody Harrelson spews anti-vax conspiracies in rambling SNL monologue. You know, I don't understand. Um, People treat comedy shows as if this is the prime minister addressing parliament. It's it's a, supposed to be a 90-minute comedy show where you're supposed to laugh. And it's jokes. People are not supposed to read the uh, monologue of whoever's hosting Saturday Night Live as if they're reading the Talmud. And I felt the same way with uh, Dave Chappelle's jokes on his Saturday Night Live monologue. It's silly. It's just supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be silly. You could find the jokes funny about the about the COVID vaccine, or you could find them not funny. But they're jokes. Laugh? Don't laugh. It's Woody Harrelson. Who cares what Woody Harrelson says? It's not going to have effect on anybody. So the anti-vaccine proponents were delighted with Woody Harrelson, what they called red-pilling the masses, and speaking truth to power. Uh, the actor who described himself in his monologue as an anarchist, Marxist, ethical, hedonist, non-discriminatory empath, episte- epistemological, deconstructionist, and Texan, uh, immediately began receiving accolades from people who oppose the vaccines. Others criticized Harrelson and SNL for airing his remarks Thank you, NBC SNL, for Woody Harrelson's insipid anti-vax monologue. Who are you going to have guest host next week? Scott Bayo, Rob Schneider, Kevin Sorbo. Maybe invite Kanye back while you're at it. That's uh, something from Twitter user Lee Goldberg. Another viewer asked, does SNL think just harmless noise? Normalizing anti-vax conspiracies does real harm. Well, let me answer the question for SNL. Yes, it is harmless noise. It's a lighthearted, comedic 30 seconds. I, look, And I say this as a pro-vax person. I am vaccinated and boosted. And honestly, I think the one of the greatest contributions to of the Trump administration, I think there are many, but I think one of the greatest contributions of the Trump administration was Operation Warp Speed and the development of these COVID vaccines. That being said, I don't have a problem with a joke, especially if it's something that everybody knows Woody Harrelson believes this kind of thing. What's the harm? I don't have a problem with it. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. For instance, you know, at the beginning of his monologue, he says, this country seems so divided, beautiful, ugly, black, white, blue, red. I love everybody. Maybe because I'm a redneck hippie. All right. Are you going to be offended because you're a redneck or a hippie? Come on. I think that's fine. 
they make it sound like the whole monologue was anti-vax. It was thirty it, seconds. Yeah, it was a very that what, you, what we just played was the whole thing. That was the whole anti-vax yeah, the, part. The the uh, setup was that he said the last time that he was hosting Saturday Night Live, he at, was November of 2019, and after the show on Sunday, he went to Central Park was leaning against a tree and was writing a script for a movie. He's reading reading a script. Yeah, he was reading a script. He was reading a script for a movie and then he went off, like I said, it kind of went off on a tangent. Right. And then that was the ending joke at the very end of the monologue. So I could see why like a few people laughed. Like I don't think the payoff lent to the build is really what it was. I don't it wasn't that funny. Right. But I don't think it was offensive. No. So everybody was waiting for him to get back to, well, what was the script right. about? And then that was it, and it wasn't really that yeah, fun. Yeah, it was anticlimactic. Okay. Yeah. So you agree with me on this, too? Yeah. I watched right. it. I saw Jeez, it. And I was you're like, yeah. agreeing with me a lot today. Like I hope that's re- reflected in this uh, less interesting side of Midnight that you people are hosting. We'll see about that. Um, by the way, if you want to hear the less interesting side of Midnight with uh, Kenneth and uh, Alex Barnard and Matt Blaze, you can... Just search The Other Side of Midnight on any podcast app, or you could just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And they it's sort of an after show of this show. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's got its fans. 800-848-9222. Donna is in Brooklyn. Hello, Donna. Hi. Hi, Maron. Hi. I'm calling about the Lady Gaga. I think she should pay the money because uh, every other... Thing, like when there was the police was asking for guns back and they will give money for it they they never look they just give them the reward no you know, matter what Donna, what kind that, of gun that is such a great point it, they have these cash yeah. for guns programs all right, over the exactly. country these gun buybacks programs do you think a criminal would be bringing in some guns if he knew, oh, okay, just stop and talk with this exactly. cop before you get your yeah, gun? Yeah. You're right. It's so you, ridiculous. Yeah. It's the same principle. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I had my dog, so I, I, I was like, and then a friend brought it in back, and I know the guy, and I was like, I, I, no question. I just want my dog. I give the money. I just, you just want your animal, you know? Exactly. Like so no, I, I exactly. She, I think she should give the money, and then they should take it up with the uh, the cops. Should take it on a different thing if they want to deal with the lady and investigate or whatever. It should be a different situation. Donna, I completely agree with you. Thank you. Corey's in Florida. Hello, Corey. Good morning, Frank. Howdy. Um, I actually had this happen to me. Um, my you, dog you, was you offered somebody five hundred thousand dollars and then reneged. No, not no. five hundred thousand. I, not that far. I didn't go. Uh, it was a she was she's a French bulldog. Um, at the time, I got her from my friend. Uh, anyway, long story short, we were in the middle of actually putting up my ring cameras, and she would go from backyard to front yard, and there was a bunch of us watching her. All of a sudden, she's gone, and she's not one to wander. Well, we searched everywhere and came to the conclusion that the people next door who had just moved in, you know, with a band, like a band of five, six cars, someone must have, from there, she would go with anybody, come in. So tried doing my own work. Eventually, 
I came down to somebody recommended calling this woman, Jamie Katz, the pet detective. And this is not a joke, but I said, okay, I'll do it. And what she recommended was if you don't have any kind of video of their face, she said, do you have the money to pay the, because I put, you know, I was going to make signs. Reward five hundred, a thousand bucks. The dogs are worth five thousand dollars. Or well, people pay five thousand dollars while they're killing a million dogs in shelters. But nevertheless, she said, Listen, you have to put up a substantial reward and if you do what I say, if you have the money, you're gonna have to put up twenty five hundred at least or three thousand dollars. And if you follow what I say, tomorrow I'll have the signs for you and where to put them. Right. And so, if you have the cash. She was yeah. blackmailing you. No. She was actually a pet detective. Oh. And she had 99. Yeah. She recovered like 95% of all the dogs and cats that had been kidnapped or lost. So. I said, yes, I have that money. I'm willing to pay it. She said, okay, you're going to pay it. You're going to talk to me. You're going to set it up in a place, and you're not going to call the cops. You're not going to try to strong arm these people because they're going to say they found the dog somewhere. So I, I carry a gun. Uh, we are allowed to in Florida, but I... She said, you're going to pay them. You're going to say, thank you for bringing me my dog back. And you're going to walk away because these people know where I live. And they live next door, whoever, mm. you know. Right. So I had to weigh that. And so you paid them. So it was two very nice young ladies who I'm sure weren't the actual dog nappers. Right. As, and as I'm sure is the case it, with Jennifer McBride. So you paid them. Yeah. Right. I paid them. I took the dog, and they said they found her two and a half miles away, whatever. But end of story. I didn't have to walk behind my back. I didn't. I didn't have evidence of anybody taking. Right. And you know what? Uh, it is what it is. And right. she's safe and at home. Exactly. Well, I'm glad that worked out well for you, Corey. And I think Lady Gaga and the authorities would be. Well, well, really, just Lady Gaga. It's really just up to her. If she wants to pay this woman, nothing's stopping her. I think she'd be well advised to listen to you. Uh, 800-848-9222. Might be a struggle to make it through that whole phone call, but hey, I did it. Jim is in New Jersey. Hello, Jim. Hey, Frank. Can you hear me? What? Frank? Sorry? Can you hear me? Speak up a little. Frank, can you? Frank, can you hear me? What? I think so. Hello. Okay. Give it a shot. Okay. First comment about that Scott, you know, the cartoonist. Yes. You know, if you parse each sentence that he said, some were factual. If 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 a group of people say hate all white people, that that's a racist remark right there. You go through there's some things in there that were not racist on his part. But then just like somebody like me, he became like me. Once you start talking, you lose restraint. 
some of the things he said were helpful to say, hey, there's something wrong here. And then he went too far. Then he went too far. Then about Lady Gaga, let me ask you this. If, if there's no questions asked, why are the police involved initially? Well, that, if, I think if, that's if, exactly why she's suing. No, no, but she went to the police. Right. She She's dumb. You know, she sounds like some other people, you know, from the, you know, like the the head of the uh, that tr- the Trump thing down in Georgia. If, if, if Lady Gaga is directly into the police, you call back like this gentleman said before, back to Lady Gaga and say, no, no, you want the dog. We deal directly with you. Well, but, you I know. think I think, you know, in the case of Lady Gaga, once someone's shot. You have to involve the police. What, what are you not going to call the police when there's a gunshot victim? You have to. Okay, but you know, okay, then, then, then they went too far. You know, then the lady, whoever hired her, went too far. You know, and and the whole thing changes. But if I were Lady Gaga now, from all the bad publicity she's getting, you know, right with this conversation, you know, she did something wrong. I would do do the very polite thing, get involved in the game with the people and have her lawyer sue, give the, give the woman the money and then sue the woman for the money back. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we're on the same page on that one, Jim. Thank you. We're going to do the thousand dollar minute in a moment. If you would like an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You can be that seventh caller right now. 800-848-9222. We'll play straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is classic. There's another Dana Marquis selection. You know what I've decided? Because it takes about a week for people's song selections to get honored, I'm going to start reaching out to people whose birthday it is a week from now and get that into the pipeline. So we'll, we'll, I think that might be a better way to go. All right. Um, without further ado, we are going to try and give away some money. Uh, I want to repeat there, whether you answer one question correct or nine, you only get a consolation prize. Same consolation prize. No money, unless you can answer all ten. You know the best way to win money? Answer all ten. All right, without further ado, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... 
It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Let us say hello to Patrick in Manhattan. Hello, Patrick. Hello. Patrick, have you heard this portion of the show before? No, all of a sudden I hear that you changed the rules. I've never gotten through before. And now all of a sudden change the rules that you don't give away money after getting seven or eight or nine. Right. right? So the, the thing to do is get all ten. Right. OK. You, um, you, um, you if you get one correct, I'm just going to move on to the next question. You ready to go? Uh, I don't think I'm ready to go because the way you change the rules, I, I'm going to have a stopwatch. And. I would like to listen to the radio so I can at least hear you, but well, no, I just shut you're going to hear me off. on the phone, Patrick. Okay. And I, sh- I shut my um, speakerphone off because... Anyone want to guess how this I'm contest kind of hard is going to go? Hearing. Let's but go ahead. Oh. Let's see. Okay. Let's well, see I, if I can witness. All right. Okay. Um, if you're ready to go, so, we'll get started. fingers with me. You know what I'm saying, Frank? Beg your pardon? I said, don't pull any patty fingers with me. Ah, I would never don't do that to you, stuff. Patrick. Okay. If you're ready to go. No delays, Frank. No delays. No tricks. Yeah, Patrick, why would I trick you? I want you to win. Because you don't want to pay me $1,000. That's why. It's go not, it's not my it. money. I'm happy to have a winner every day. What do you mean it's not your money? Who's... Um, go ahead. All right. I'm ready to go. All right. Thank you. I think, um, think I might be rooting against Patrick now. All right, let's go. Uh, what month is it? March. No, I'm sorry. It's February. <clears throat> sorry, Patrick. All right, I'm going to put you on hold, and um, Kenneth will give you a magnet. I think we had an idea of where that one was going to go. You can't say that was a trick question. What Patty month Pat, is it? I'm glad he had his, stop, his stopwatch. Oh, boy. I think he might have done better with a sundial or a calendar. All right. I have no further comment on that. All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, anything that we have uh, – <laughs> That we have discussed thus far. You know, sometimes people think that Kenneth is intentionally picking poor candidates for this, but really it is I think that's the the fact that the guy on Friday did so well and that this fella thought that it was March, it really is an indication that um you know that this is totally random. All right. You know, tomorrow, you know who we may have on the show tomorrow? I'm supposed to, I may pre-tape an interview with him this afternoon, Ralph Nader. And I'm not sure because it's one of those things. They got back to me on Friday and that I didn't see the email because I'm buried in an avalanche of email. I didn't see it until Saturday night, so I don't know if it'll come to fruition. And you know what's funny is today is Ralph Nader's birthday, 89 years old. Now, if you're 89 years old, I will pre-tape an interview with you happily. So uh, still working just as hard as ever. So I'm hoping uh, 
that Ralph Nader will be on the program tomorrow. In addition to Ralph Nader's birthday, it is also uh, Adam Baldwin uh, and uh, Chelsea Clinton's birthday as well. And it would have been Elizabeth Taylor's birthday had she not passed away. Uh, Celebrity chef David Burke, it's his birthday as well. And my cousin Palma, who hopefully will get to some of her birthday selections, as well as uh, Congressman Nick Langworthy, Celebrity chef David Burke, and um, a bunch of other people. Greg Calby, who I went to summer camp with many years ago, celebrating his birthday as well. 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a bit. And, um, yeah. Uh, I've had this on my list for a week. Let me mention this because, uh, just so I can stop having it in my list of things that I am poised to talk about. Liam Neeson was on The View. If you're on The View... Does anybody have any doubt what kind of interview you're going to be in store for? It's very little substance. It's it's silly. I mean, it's very superficial. Four of the people on The View, or th- all but one woman, usually has the same political viewpoint. It's silly. So Liam Neeson, 70-year-old actor, is promoting his film Marlowe. So he goes on The View. They have a wide audience. They do. Love it or hate it and something in between. They do have a big audience. So he goes on there. Here's a little bit of uh, Liam Neeson on The View. She she will believe anything that you say because it's no secret uh, that Joy thinks you're the hottest and the greatest ever. (laughs) In case, in case there was any doubt, Yes. We have a few times she's brought you up over the years. I think we have some video. I would just like to have my ashes sprinkled over Liam Neeson. <laughs> There's room in my heart for Steve and for Liam Neeson, let's say. No. I mean, Liam Neeson right now, are those kidnapping movies that he does get me so aroused I can't even oh, begin to yeah. tell <laughs> And spread my ashes over Liam Neeson. Oh. Liam Neeson. 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 Okay, I said it. Am I blushing? She's not too. Am I blushing? She just asked, am I blushing? Is he blushing? So, Joy, you received the checks, right? No. No, I'm sorry. I'm speechless at this point. Well, we do embarrassing when they put them all together like that. I know. That was evil, Brian. Now, in some ways, I have almost the same thing to say about this that I have about the Saturday Night Live thing. It's a silly show. I mean, Joy Behar is a comedian. It's fun. It's fun. Someone goes on the show. You obviously that you know the person interviewing you has a little bit of a crush on you, or at least has that's what her her on air persona is that they have a crush on. You. So what's the big deal? So Liam Neeson goes and does an interview with Rolling Stone, and look, he's do, I get it. He's trying to do interviews everywhere, and I'm a fan of Liam Neeson as both a person and an actor. But I don't have a crush on him like Joy Behar does, but he is certainly a handsome fellow. Not as handsome as Kenneth here, but hey, who is? So he does this interview with Rolling Stone in which he says, 
I was in the dressing room drinking a cup of tea, turned the TV up, and I thought, oh, this will be great. They're talking about gun violence in America, and I agree that it's an American problem. I go on stage and join the ladies during the break, and I was congratulating them on this discussion. And then our segment starts, and it's just all this BS with Joy Behar and Liam Neeson having a crush. And I've known Whoopi Goldberg for years and Joy a little bit, but I just wasn't impressed. And after the interview began, you have uh, the co-host Anna Navarro jabbing Joy Behar about her crush on Liam Neeson, while Alyssa Farah Griffin joked that the longtime panelist wants to be to get taken by Liam Neeson. And then they played that cut that you just heard. Neeson told Rolling Stone that he gets uncomfortable in those situations and that he eventually had an intelligent conversation with Sonny Hostin, who I guess is also on the show. Um, But that conversation was after the show, but he still took issue with what was aired. The segment's all about this oof, 13, 14-year-old crush, he said, of Behar. So, I mean... I feel like Liam Neeson should have known what he was in store for. I mean, it's like somebody coming on this show and then getting shocked that I asked them about UFOs. Kind of what we do. So uh, I give me a choice of Liam Neeson or Joy Behar. I'm always taking Liam Neeson. But in this instance, I really feel like for Liam Neeson, when they really went out of their way to promote him and his movie... I feel like he was not doing the right thing there. You shouldn't slam that. I, I mean, I guess he was just being honest, right? That he, I guess he did find the interview uncomfortable. But, uh, I mean, that's a big deal. All right, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. Uh, 800-848-9222. The rules are you can be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Taken from us far too soon, uh, passed away after a lengthy battle of uh, Parkinson's. But uh, we still have this song to remember him by. Thank goodness. All right, if you want to email me, you can do so. Frank.Morano, that's M O R A N O, at WABCRadio.com. If you want to find me on Twitter, you can do so at Frank Morano. Uh, you want to join our Facebook group, you can just go to. Um, you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano, or you can um, you could find the uh, you can go to our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's where we post a lot of the articles up there. If you want to know what, where we 
get the articles from that we play on the show or talk about on the show, that's that's where they we link them. Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. Without further ado, it is time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Bruno! Hey, I don't. Uh, I was in jail for nine years. I got out last year. Um, I was a soldier. Um, what? Uh, I was 55. What? Uh, were you a soldier? And why do you have this fascination with William Shatner? And how old are you? Uh, Ralph! Okay, so I have two presidential questions, uh, question for you. Which two president went to the Berlin Wall and delivered a speech there? Um, well, one was Reagan. Was the other Kennedy? Ich ein Berliner? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you. Jeff. How you doing, Frank? Um, regarding Lady Gaga, pay, pay her the $500,000, then arrest the woman, and then have her bail be $500,000. Fred. Good morning, Frank. I'll offer you one half a million dollars for the safe return of the Flory Dories. We want the Flory Dories. We want the Flory Dories. Marty. Hey, Frank, I think the problem with the social media is you just have these terminally offended people just sitting out there waiting to be offended by something. That's a good point. Oh, my God. Eddie. Good reporters get their exercises by digging for facts. Others do it by jumping to conclusions. Vito. Mike, if you were kidnapped, would your wife put a reward out uh, for your safe return? And if so, how much? Thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't count on it. Raji. Indeed. If this country's African-Americans were an independent nation, they would be the 11th richest country in the world. Wendy. Hey, Dr. Fauci said that gain-of-function research was worth the risk. Can a reporter please ask him if he still feels that way and why? Leo. Leo. In 1982, under Elbrus in Russian Caucasus, I was invited for dinner from Russian climbers. When I got eight meatballs, they started barking. Yep, it was dog meat. Ah, Bill. Congratulations to Norma Minkowitz for breaking the world record in the 400 meter as an 86-year-old woman. Wow. I'll, I'll join you in congratulating her if that's the case. Thank you, Bill. That slams the lid on things for today. We may be back tomorrow. Well, I'm going to be back tomorrow, God willing. But hopefully we'll have the birthday boy, Ralph Nader. A lot of interesting things to go over with him. Uh, if not, we'll find some interesting things to talk about anyway. Until tomorrow... Frank Moreno, good day.